I have quite probably taken more nitrous, at least in whippet form, than anyone else alive, so I feel compelled to share with all of you my experience. Excessive nitrous oxide abuse can cause permanent irreversible brain damage. I am patient zero, so please, everyone, listen to this all the way. If I had been fortunate enough to read what I am about to write 30 years ago, my life would be very, very different. I could just post the facts, but if you will walk with me through my life, you need never run the risk of having what happened to me happen to you. If you are a serious nitrous user, listening to this could help save your life. It's going to be quite long, but it is important to me to paint the whole picture. I also hope that it might prove entertaining, and some of you might recognize yourselves in the narrative. And those who feel a sympathy with my feelings, those who relate to my expression and understanding, those who think yes, yes, are the ones who need to listen to this the most, as you are in the greatest danger, or could be, if you are not careful. I am being honest about some stuff that I have hidden from others all my life. Some of it is quite embarrassing, but I choose to share the humorous aspect with you all. I can't be the only lunatic in this world. This is not an anti-nitrous post. This is information that has only recently become available. Personally, I wish our atmosphere was oxygen and nitrous oxide instead of oxygen and nitrogen. So without further ado... The tale begins in the dentist chair. I was nine years old. I had never taken any drugs and was not looking to at the time. But I had a phobia about dental work and the new dentist told me that he would give me laughing gas and it would remove my fear. So he attached the mask to my nose and told me to breathe normally. After about 20 seconds, I began to feel a tingle, quite pleasant, which was getting stronger with each passing second. The dentist asked me if I could feel the gas yet, and a drug addict was born. I told him, no, I don't feel anything, so he turned it up. By now, I was really starting to feel amazing. It was fantastic, but it was more than just tingles and physical well-being. Even though I was only nine, I started seeing patterns in everything. A deeper connection, set of connections, a lattice that embraced reality, but which had a meaning, a message, beneath the surface, something important. The dentist asked me once more if I felt the gas. I told him that it was starting to take effect, but was not very strong, despite the fact that I could barely string the sentence together, as I wanted him to turn it up even more, which he did. The last thing I remember hearing was the dentist saying to the nurse, this one likes to fly high. From that moment, I knew that I had to obtain nitrous oxide again at some point. I had imaginings of listening to music while feeling that way and how awesome it would be, and I was right, of course. It stuck there, in my memory, unforgettable. I was nine and I no longer saw the universe the way that I had before. Jump ahead 11 years, I'm 20 and I found acid about six months earlier. I'm in Amsterdam, having left South Africa to avoid military service. I'm a musician and making a living playing street music. We're on acid all the time, taking larger and larger doses each time. It's classic. I'm the Messiah, and I'm going to save the world by turning everyone onto LSD. I'm Ken Casey. I'm Ram Das. I'm Neil Cassidy driving the bus to the next acid test. I'm on a mission. I have found the ultimate truth, and I believe that I have the ability to express it. It's straight out of the electric Kool-Aid acid test. I am the merry prankster, doing ever-increasing doses of LSD because I believe that there is a reality behind this one, and I'm going to evolve and become a transformed being, a metamorphosized, evolutionized, mental telepathical guru. 
I even have a following. There are five of us, and I'm the leader. I'm the fucking chosen one. This is why I'm alive. This is why I exist. I am the new messiah. It's funny looking back on it now. A bit embarrassing. Okay, a lot. And I've never told anyone about this before. Like who would admit this shit? But it's important to paint the whole picture. But LSD is not a beast to be tamed. Oh, I believed that I was in control of the acid, that I held the reins. I had become its master and its servant, but I was treating it disrespectfully. And when you do that, the acid inevitably turns around and slaps you down a peg or two. In my case, it was all the way down from my lofty delusions of grandeur to a smear on the roadside. A new acid had come out called simply Mandala. The dealer told me that it was not commercial acid, a bit stronger and to boot, a half a hit was a hole. I had been dropping between five and 10 at a time, and I did not assume that this half hit of new acid was going to top my multiple ingestions from the weeks before. But I learned that day that what I had been taking was not truly LSD, but a pale shadow of what real LSD is. All my research, all my dosing, nothing had prepared me for what happened. It was phenomenal acid. I had never seen such colors and a warped dimensions that I did not recognize anything around me. It was too much for downtown Amsterdam, so we all jumped on a tram, laughing uncontrollably all the way home. Once home, it was even stronger, having really kicked in. I made a big hashish pipe and took a huge hit of really good Afghan hash. And then, I completely lost my mind. I had to reconstruct it all afterward with the help of my friends. There was a huge flash, and reality had shattered, literally. It was as though everything I'd been seeing was made of glass, like a mirror, and the hashish exploded the acid so hard and fast that I suffered a psychotic break. More to the point. From one moment to the next, I had total amnesia. I was with my closest friends, a girl who had come over to Europe with me, who was like my sister. I had known them all for years, but I recognized no one. And I did not know who I was or where I was, and I don't mean which town, I mean which universe. I was a total blank, wiped clean, nothing left. I realized that I was bleeding. In my throat, it had turned to glass and shattered. Blood was everywhere and my life started slipping away. I collapsed slowly to the floor and died. However, a while later I appeared to be conscious. So this was it. I was dead. This must then be the afterlife. A man walked up to me and looked at me curiously and then said, are you okay? But what I heard was, are you okay? In a kind of deep twilight zone surrealism. Who was this person? If I was dead, perhaps he was me, a reflection of me on the other side of the shattered mirror that was reality. So I said, who are you? And he said to me, you know who I am, which I heard in a big boomy voice as, you know who I am. The poor guy, he didn't have a clue what was going on. None of them had actually realized yet that I had quite literally lost my mind, all of it. So I deduced that if he were me, a kind of afterlife version, that we would have the same mother as I. So in an attempt to confirm this, I asked him, who is your mother? To which he replied, you know who my mother is, which I heard as, okay, you get the picture. I treated LSD as though it was something that I actually had control over, that I was bigger than acid, that I was beyond a bad trip. I will end this part of the tale of this day here, but know that it took the rest of the day to reconstruct my basic ego, just knowing who and where I was. 
I still felt broken glass in my throat from where it had shattered when the mirror shattered. I could no longer sing. When I tried, I was overwhelmed by an abject terror and shut down. It was weeks before I could sing again, which I needed to do to survive, and I continued to have terrifying flashbacks for the next six months. This was the most phenomenally life-changing experience of my entire life. I was afraid, afraid to do acid. I had been so humbled, so beaten, so kicked in the teeth. Any normal person would have just said, that's it, never again, but I could not do that. Live in fear the rest of my life because I had experienced this overwhelming and incomprehensible annihilation of ego. I had to face my fear. I had to get back in the driver's seat. I had to understand what had happened in order to be whole again. And there was born a true and devout acid head for life, still going strong. I needed to understand myself, how my brain worked, and LSD was the tool that had both damaged and repaired me. The experience kind of put a crimp in my plan to save the world, as I realized that it was completely unethical to turn anyone on unless they are truly desired to be turned on. It was a full year before in midwinter, Christmas time in Konstanz, Germany, that I did my next truly superb LSD. Only this one was as soft as the other one had been hard. And finally, utterly high, I looked in the mirror and was no longer afraid. I finally had all of my mind back and my fear was gone, but my respect has never faltered. And now, the long-awaited return to the topic of nitrous oxide. Who would have thought, who would have guessed, that nitrous oxide, laughing gas, was used to make whipped cream? I found out from a young freakzoid heroin junkie in Germany that whippets were nitrous. Finally, the nine-year-old boy in me shouted in glee. I knew it. I knew I would find it again. And this time, I was going to really get to know it. I remember buying the whipped cream machine and a box of cartridges. I remember my total excitement, my fear of disappointment. What if he was wrong? I wound in the first cartridge, neglecting of course to add the cream. I hyperventilated for a minute, breathed all the way out, and inhaled the entire contents. Within 5-10 to 10 seconds, I recognized the feeling. My insides screamed in glee, and for the next minute my world was perfect. It was exactly as I had remembered it, only more so. This is my encapsulated life story, so I have to jump to pivotal moments if I'm going to keep your attention. Let's just say that over the course of the next year, I did hundreds of boxes of nitrous, maybe a thousand. And the more I explored the nitrous reality, the more sense it made, of everything. I was starting to feel that I understood the intrinsic nature of the universe, not just in the sense of thoughts, but in perceptions, understandings. There were times, and I'm sure that most of you can relate, when I felt that for a moment I truly understood the universe as it really was, and it was so simple and funny, fucking hilarious. I would experience the moment and crack up laughing uncontrollably because I understood the core of the essence of God, the universe, matter, gravity, light, energy, and quanta. The profundity of nitrous is fleeting, and after the epiphany it fades so quickly that one can't quite remember what it was that one was thinking and why it was so funny. This, I found to be the curse of nitrous, to have this understanding, so plain and simple, even expressible in mere words, if I could find them, or once found if I could not lose them. How, I wondered, can we extend this experience? Make it come down slower so that it would be possible to bring back some of this universal intrinsic truth to the real world. 
On a beautiful summer's day of 1982, I discovered the chemical synergy that I have affectionately referred to for the last 30 years as gasid, as in gas and acid. And from that moment, my life changed almost as profoundly as the day I lost my mind, because it was the day that I found my answers, all of them. I had done some acid, not a lot, maybe half a hit. I was still very cautious, after my annihilation a year earlier, and the theory was twofold. If I did nitrous right at the end of an acid trip, like 8 hours into it, when everything had resolved on the acidic level, perhaps A, the nitrous would boost the strength of the acid to give me a momentary high that was like 5 or 10 hits of really good acid, and B, that perhaps the acid would help to extend the duration of the nitrous and give me a little more time to try and bring back some of the deeper essence of the experience. I was extremely careful. I'd lost my mind once already, and I was not keen on a second round. My first hit was minuscule. There was a very slight shift in my perceptions. I took a little more and felt the nitrous very vaguely, but in a way like never before, and in a good way like I had never imagined. By the time I was on the last cartridge, I took the entire thing, and I experienced for the first time in my life, the holy realm that is gassed. The world that is gassed is a story unto itself with so many facets. I'm not going to try and define any of the experiences right now, too much of a tangent. I became a student of Gassid. I had found what was, at least for me, the key that unlocks the doors to everything, and more importantly, it was the most exquisite experience that can be. It is heaven to me, a perfect state of being, the thing that we all at the core wish to experience, even once. I had found the key, a gateway, a wormhole to what has for me become not so much a drug synergy as an actual place. I devoted my life to this faith of mine, and my quest was to bring back some of these truths, and to find a way to share them with others, which I did in fact accomplish. I have kind of built an environment that almost guarantees arriving at this place. There is technology involved, it's all very complicated. But this post is not about Gassid, it's about Nitrous, and the risks. Over the next 12 years, I did Gassid about 500 times and we're talking full-blown 4-hour experiences with like 10 boxes of nitrous each time. It is my world, my reality, my guru, my god, and myself. I have no doubts, no hesitation, no lack of understanding, and it just got better all the time, as I learned to pilot this spaceship that I built over the course of those 12 years. I eventually left Europe and moved to Canada, got a new life and a new wife, and continued building and discovering. It was very hard at times, terribly lonely. From my perspective, I had found the answer, and what's more is I could pretty much prove it, and took a few select people on a trip around the universe, but it was so lonely. All I wanted to do was share what I had found, but very few people knew about nitrous back then. I began to get adamant about finding proof, finding a way to bring back something significant enough that would make people take me seriously. I knew that if I told this all to a shrink that I would be labeled as a schizophrenic with delusions of grandeur, but I knew that all a doubter had to do was come for a ride and see for himself. They would find their own truth, not mine. Everyone has their own truth. All I had found was the medium in which to fairly reliably produce a very specific experience and to be able to return and continue the thought anytime. I was frustrated. My wife was not too supportive of this and I wanted her on my side. So I tried even harder to find some tangible evidence that the work that I was doing was valid. Telepathy, psychokinesis, some small evolutionary step that would demonstrate that what I was doing was valid and that I was not just another nutter who did too many psychedelics. 
This was the time that I had almost completed my spaceship. It was an entire room, with a driver's seat positioned in the middle. There were spinning wheels and stroboscopic lights, all synchronized to music. My own, of course, which was written specifically to induce certain types of trance using light and sound to guide the subject on a solid path. I was so close, but relations were getting strained with my wife, who thought that I was obsessed. She was right, of course. I was. And why not? This was the most important thing in my life. It was the one thing in which I truly had unshakable faith. I had to find some evidence of the validity. I needed support on this, not criticism. I at least deserved a chance to demonstrate it to someone else. To have the years that I had invested validated by another fearless soul who was willing to walk through the gates of heaven and be embraced lovingly by the universe. And now, we start to approach the moment of truth, the point, the reason that I have written everything that came before now. I am a scientist, not just a druggie. I don't just take drugs, I study them, I prepare myself, I am informed, I know the risks, I am careful. But this was before the internet. The only knowledge that existed was in books, and almost no one knew practically anything about nitrous. It had just slipped by, owing to the fact that it was legal, and a secret known by not a lot of people back then. According to Peter Stafford's Psychedelic Encyclopedia at the time, nitrous oxide was a perfectly safe drug. There were two, and only two dangers. The first rule was, don't breathe directly from a tank, you can freeze your lungs. And the second rule was, don't tie a mask to your face, because if you fall unconscious, you will eventually die from lack of oxygen. That was it. Other than that, it was safe. They give it to kids for fuck's sake. I don't know exactly when it went from genuine psychoscientific spiritual research to addiction, but it was marked by the fact that I started doing nitrous without doing acid. I know myself. I am an obsessive raging fucking maniac when it comes to drugs. I have no breaks. So I made a deal with myself many years before, after doing way too much nitrous for way too long and having spent a small fortune on it, that I would only do nitrous if I had done acid. I tried to keep it to once a month, but not always. I kept it at least to once a week, but I was so intent on finding my proof quickly that I made an exception just once, then again, and again, and again. I really couldn't afford it, and I knew my wife would be pissed at me for wasting money, so I kept it to myself. After all, I was almost there. Twelve years of exploration and design was finally going to come to fruition. I almost understood it all. I was so close, and the nitrous would run out, and I would go to the store and get more, and then be racked with guilt over it. And suddenly, I realized that I was addicted to nitrous oxide. They had said nothing about addiction in the books. But I had been doing it every day for about six weeks, maybe more, and I had been doing it excessively before it became daily. And when it ran out, I just could not cope. This was not a drug withdrawal like an opiate. This was madness incarnate. I could not stand being in my body. It was blindingly intense and wouldn't go away. The next weeks are only a vague memory with scattered images and vague recollections. I could not afford to keep taking the nitrous, but I could not survive stopping. I wanted to call out for help, but who the fuck would I talk to? There was no internet. Very few people knew about the recreational legality of nitrous. I felt so stupid. How do I even begin to explain to someone that I inhaled the whipped cream charges? They'd probably lock me up. So I had to stretch the nitrous I had, breathe very, very little in between, hold my breath for minutes at a time, not breathe as much as possible. I was losing it. I knew that. I was starting to go crazy, even by my own standards. 
And those of you who have actually listened this far can probably understand that I am a rather bizarre individual. I don't remember much of the last weeks. I felt like I was dying, slowly. My thoughts were scrambled. There were dark patches in my consciousness. At one point, I thought I might have been possessed. I had gone from what I considered to be a self-respecting scientist of the wackiest of varieties to a fucking loony. I was lost. I was doing a gig on Vancouver Island, sitting on the beach doing nitrous all day long in tiny little gasps. The first night I noticed that I'd lost the feeling in the tips of my fingers on my right hand. The next day, my left hand. By the time I got home, my hands and feet were numb. Two days later, my entire body had no sensation and I had completely lost my motor control. Then I was in the hospital and the year that followed never became cemented in memory. People, please pay attention. This is not a well-known fact. Not a lot of people have screwed up quite as badly as I did and it's never been made public in a big way. The effect of nitrous oxide is cumulative. If I remove the mental and psychological and emotional horror that followed, I'll tell you that the physical sensations finally returned, as did my motor control. But the problem is that I had damaged my brain, and the signals that should have just reported to my cerebellum that I was in fact alive and moving were mistranslated by my brain as pain signals. In short, when my feeling returned, I was in unbearable pain, everywhere, non-stop, every freaking day of my life for the last 14 years. I nearly committed suicide so many times, not because of depression or sadness, but because I simply could not imagine waking up every day to this, suffering, and nothing to be done about it, because it is not physical as such, it's neuropathic pain, and it did not heal, and there is no treatment. I have spent 14 years wishing to God that the internet had been around just a little earlier, because once it arrived, I had found another person who had done what I had done, and who had suffered identical damage. I only found this two years after the fact. I could describe my suffering over the last 14 years, but I hope that I have successfully illustrated my point through this post. Nitrous is amazing. Gas it is everything that I've said it is times a million. There was nothing wrong with my perceptions, only my obsession and total lack of self-restraint. I had my cake and I was eating it, and I could have continued to privy to what I consider to be the best chemically induced experience that there is. I found heaven and I was such a glutton that I destroyed it through my greed. I still believe absolutely in nitrous, and particularly gasid. It is simply the best, nothing is better, not even love. I am almost done, there are so many aspects of the story that I left out, because we're talking 15 odd years, hundreds, maybe thousands of cases of nitrous and about 750 hits of acid. All I wanted to do was share it with someone else. I have told only a handful of people about this, and I have never told the whole story at once. If even one of you is listening to this, ran the risk of making my mistake, and if this post at some future point helps to prevent that eventuality from becoming a reality, then exposing myself in this way will have been worth it. Please friends, be careful. If you ever find heaven, take care of it. The following is one of my experiences from attempting to induce myself on Suboxone. Before anyone says the obvious, buprenorphine is in no way psychedelic, and when used properly, has been extremely beneficial in my life. 
But anyone who has taken some too soon after using opiates knows the pure agony and hell that your body and mind will go through. This combined with dehydration and malnourishment is only comparable to a very, very bad trip. A little bit of background. I've been a regular drug user from a pretty young age, 12, and was dependent on opiates on and off from the age of 18 to 29. This experience was in 2019, while I was living in a rented room in North Philly. I've recently relapsed following the death of my father and was on the run from parole, so I had some issues, to say the least. I was spending roughly $80 a day on heroin, which was most likely just fentanyl and research chemicals. And as you could expect, my life was spiraling out of control. The extreme anxiety and depression that comes with being dependent on such strong opiates is incredible. Like I said, I have been using opiates of all kinds for years before this. I've been in withdrawal what seems like a million times, but the dope I was getting at the time was on a whole different level. I would wake up mid-anxiety attack literally every morning, which wouldn't subside until I used or walked to Kensington to get more. I looked like a skeleton and knew going back to jail was inevitable if I didn't quit. But the withdrawal was so extreme every time that I can never go more than a couple hours without giving up. My solution was something I was very familiar with. Wait long enough until the opiate was out of my system and take a sub. If only it was that easy. I did the last of my dope at around 3am and planned on passing out for a couple hours, lay in bed all day, then take a piece of sub at roughly 9pm that night. I woke up around 1pm and binged trailer park boys to pass the time. At around 7pm, I was reaching the point in withdrawal that usually causes me to give up. I had all the telltale signs and although it's tough to accurately assess yourself in that state, I scored myself as a 4 on the Clinical Opiate Withdrawal Scale, or COWS. Thank God. It's time. 17 hours has to be enough. Man, was I wrong. I opened an 8mg Suboxone strip and cut off approximately a 2mg square. I have always hated the taste and obviously preferred the bioavailability of intranasal use, so I placed the square on a spoon with a bit of water and let it dissolve. As I tilted my head back and sniffed, I was eagerly awaiting feeling better. I remember saying to myself, in a little bit of time, you'll be feeling just fine. About five minutes later, I felt the first sign of the hell to come. A cold, metal-like shiver slowly made its way up my spine. This can't be good. I sat up, and began to panic. What did I just do to myself? Goosebumps covered my entire body and I instantly felt extreme nausea and diarrhea. Before I could even get off my bed, a putrid, disgusting yellow stomach bile literally exploded from my lips. I ran to my bathroom but couldn't even make it the 20 feet to the toilet before it came out the other end as well. I remember sitting on the toilet, literally screaming at the top of my lungs in agony, while the yellow bile burst out in between breaths. 
My mouth kept filling up with saliva every five seconds, like I just took a drink. I kept swallowing, but that just caused me to throw up more. I also had an extremely bad metallic taste in my mouth that was somehow nostalgic. My skin felt like somebody stripped me of all my clothes, threw me on an iceberg in Antarctica, and the only thing I had to keep me warm was lava. I shuffled back to bed and convinced myself this will only last 45 minutes after a quick Google search on PW. I wish. For some reason, the symptoms lessened a bit and I attempted to smoke a cigarette. I'm not sure if this is actually what caused it, but while smoking, I unconsciously sniffed and tasted a drip of sub go down the back of my throat. Oh shit. Just like that, all the symptoms returned, just as extreme as before. I did not know what to do. I remember laying in a child's pose and periodically screaming into my pillow, just wishing it would end. I would lay there for 36 more hours. I started becoming delirious sometime that night. I had multiple voices in my head and I became convinced there was little people living in my body, controlling and causing these symptoms. And not just any people, it was the trailer park boys. I saw Ricky and Bubbles with buckets attempting to bail out my saliva like they were bailing out a boat. Meanwhile, Randy and Mr. Leahy were sabotaging them in the process. The next day came and went as I laid there, dying. I could hear people outside and I so desperately wanted to ask them for help, but I didn't even have the energy to plug my phone in the charger, let alone get anyone's attention. I didn't sleep, but I remember literally fantasizing of a red Gatorade, and at times, truly thought someone brought me one, only to realize that nobody did. By this point, I was contemplating how I was going to tell my girlfriend and family I was crazy. The next morning, I knew I had to do something, or I was gonna die here. Of course my plan was, instead of going to the emergency room, I would just go get more dope to hopefully end this nightmare. It took me hours to summon the energy to get out of bed and get dressed. From where I lived, it would usually take me about 20 minutes to walk to the EL at York Dauphin. This day, it took me close to an hour and a half. Every smell on the way was unbelievably putrid and sounds literally hurt. The squeaking of the train on the rails felt like someone was stabbing me in both temples. I finally got off at K&A and made my way to Reach Street. The trap they were using at the time was about halfway up the block and I could see people going in and out as I slowly shuffled forward. Okay, almost there. As I walked in the completely dark room, Lighters flickered in corners as the smell of crack and piss filled my lungs and caused me to puke more yellow bile all over the steps leading back out to the street. With blurry vision, I lifted my head to see a police van speeding down the wrong way down the one-way street. I instinctively started walking away as nonchalant as possible, but as I heard the sliding of the van door as the tires screeched to a stop, I knew I was fucked. I wanted to run, 
but I just didn't have the energy. I heard the cop's voice say, Good morning, as he walked in front of me, snapping on blue gloves. It's pretty common for cops to shut down a block like that down there, and usually, they let the users go, unless of course you have a warrant. I was one of the roughly 12 people sitting on the curb while they ran our names. As I look back, I know I subconsciously wanted to get caught, but of course at the time, I just wanted to get the fuck out of there. Although I wasn't positive, I knew my parole officer had most likely issued a warrant for me a couple weeks prior. Lo and behold, he did. I remember the cuffs feeling like razors and my hair feeling like icicles as the cop pulled down my hood and put me in the back of the van. The door slamming shut sent a sharp shock throughout my whole body. The only thing I remember about the rest of the ride was the cops laughing. I didn't know Justin Bieber did dope. Thankfully, the cop that arrested me asked if I thought I needed medical attention and they took me to Temple University Hospital. The male nurse that was tending to me was getting pissed I wouldn't undress and put on the smock they gave me, but I just couldn't. The floral design of the curtain around my bed was twisting and morphing, and the beeping of the machine sounded like nails on a chalkboard. I was puking off the side of the bed as the nurse tried to hook up the IV. I remember him saying, you gotta stay still or you're gonna get hurt, to which I replied, you're the one that's gonna get hurt. He obviously wasn't happy with that response and said, alright man, threw up his hands and left. At this point, I saw my mom standing on the side of my bed. She was 80 miles away, telling me to calm down, and what would I do if someone treated her like that? She's an RN. The doctor finally came over. I remember his hand touching my leg, feeling like it was covered in hot spikes. I'm not sure if he was aware of the differences between regular withdrawal and my withdrawal, and I felt like they thought I was overreacting. He talked to me about my use and implied that the only thing that would make me feel better is an opiate, and he was not going to give me any. He ordered me the usual withdrawal meds, clonidine and Imodium IV fluids, and left. I laid there completely defeated. I could not believe all of this just happened. If there was ever a sign to stop, this is it. I prayed silently and swore I wouldn't touch any opiates if God could just make this pass. Then, the doctor came back. How you doing, buddy? I just looked at him and shook my head. You know, at the other hospital I work at, they have methadone to help with this. Let me go see if we have it here. My addict, manipulating brain, saw a golden opportunity from this statement. I'll get him to give me something. The doctor came back a couple minutes later and said unfortunately we don't have methadone. At this point, I haven't given them a urine sample and refused to speak to the crisis counselor. I started telling him how much I wanted to stop and how hard it's been, how I'm a good person and this isn't me. And then I went for it. Doc, I'll go to rehab, I'll give you a urine, talk to the counselor, whatever. Please don't make me go there feeling like this. He responded with a couple of other questions about my use and listened to my heart. 
I knew I almost had him and used my ace in the hole. Doc, I don't even know if I have any opiates in my system anymore. They won't even give me a detox bed without a dirty urine. He kind of stopped what he was doing and looked at me as to say touche. Okay, I'll see what I can do. The male nurse from before came over a couple minutes later and gave me two milligrams of morphine. This did absolutely nothing as far as physical symptoms, but made it so I could at least try to sleep. I didn't, but used the next two hours or so thinking of the right way to ask for a bigger dose. Eventually, the doctor came back and asked how I was feeling. Doc, I just got done telling you I've been taking Vicodin since I was 12. And you give me two milligrams? We're dealing with an opiate blocker here. You gotta at least give me 10. I knew he wasn't gonna give me 10 milligrams, but I figured I'd start off high. He started saying why he couldn't, my body weight, etc. But eventually, we settled on 8 milligrams. I was ecstatic. Dying, but ecstatic. The male nurse came back, and just as he plunged it in my IV, I instantly sat up and felt the only good feeling I've had in what seemed like forever. The nurse noticed this and said, Hey, you're not supposed to like this anymore. Jokingly. His words faded just as Peter Frampton's solo in Do You Feel Like I Do came over the hospital PA. All of my symptoms disappeared instantly and I laid back in relief, listening to Frampton rip. Three minutes later, that good feeling disappeared and I was back to hell. But that little bit of relief allowed me to somehow fall asleep on and off for a couple of hours, so I was extremely grateful. I ended up going to rehab the next day, but wasn't right mentally for a couple of weeks. I have never felt something so extreme in my life. I remember thinking it would be a great interrogation tool because nobody would be able to endure this feeling for very long. They actually dosed me the first day. Anyone who's been to rehab knows, that doesn't happen. I basically slept the entire detox stay and can remember waking up one night and instantly saying to myself, thank God. Going to rehab also saved me from my legal issues from running. But till this day, I feel like getting caught saved my life. I wasn't going to stop unless I was forced to. There's a reason why Kensington is the biggest open-air drug market. The accessibility and quality is unmatched. And for an addict, the temptation is hard to resist when you know you can always get it. If you are listening to this and are currently using, please please get help. You may think you can kick on your own, but in my 12 plus years of using, I've never seen it work. Life will get better if you stop, I promise. And if you need someone to talk to, please DM me. I'm going to end this with a rehab quote that has always stuck with me. Why give up everything for something small when you can give up something small? and gain everything. This past Friday, I came home from classes around 2.30pm and found my younger, 
18-year-old brother relaxing on the couch, watching Rick and Morty, and enjoying a bowl from his vaporizer. It was his spring break, I already had mine a couple weeks earlier, and he had convinced our parents to allow him to stay home while they drove to Orlando for their usual spring break vacation. I was tasked with watching over the house, dog, and cat, and making sure that my younger brother didn't get into any trouble. I was looking forward to smoking with him and possibly tripping with him without fear of being found out by our parents. We hadn't been very close until about a year ago. We mutually discovered that we both shared a penchant for smoking cannabis. Over the past year, we had bonded through smoking together, sharing music, and sharing our psychedelic experiences. We had tripped together twice before with DXM, once with MDMA, and once off of three tabs of 25B NBOME. The NBOME trip began nicely, but ended semi-badly as our parents found us obviously under the influence and began interrogating us concerning the drug. There were no adverse health effects, however, we were tripping quite intensely, and being interrogated is not an ideal setting for tripping. Our parents were quite upset. Despite our bad trip, we still enjoyed the psychedelic experience and looked forward to another more enjoyable one together. After arriving home from classes, I proposed the idea of tripping. He was on board and began messaging his friends for possible connections. One of his classmates, whom he had shared several classes with and casually talked to, said that he had seven tabs of 25B NBOME that he had been saving and was willing to share. The friend, who I shall refer to as Jay from here on out, arrived, and we dosed sublingually just after 5pm. The tabs were actually from the same sheet that we had used for our three-tab trip that I referred to above, Monopoly Game Board Blotter Art. Since that last trip was a little too intense, we each settled for two tabs each, confident that we would have a satisfying, not underwhelming, but not overwhelming trip. I had actually tried one tab from the same batch a couple months before, and while it was a nice time, it was underwhelming compared to my previous five NBOME experiences. Side note, this was Jay's seventh trip and probably my brother's tenth or so. He had more tripping experience than me. Thirty minutes in, we had all swallowed our tabs, having experienced the usual horrible, metallic, chemical taste and numbing effect and I felt the electric energy characteristic of NBOME start to stimulate my mind and body. We vaporized a bowl of cannabis and puffed on my hookah, which contained a mix of tobacco and cannabis, in the garage, hoping that it would calm the speediness and intensify our visuals. 50 minutes in. The hookah wasn't all that pleasant, and the disco-type lights we had in the garage were a little overstimulating, so we decided to step inside and listen to music in our family room. At this point, it was difficult figuring out the stereo system, and we weren't talking very much. I think that we were all being hit pretty hard by the NBOME, making communication difficult. My memory of the next few hours are quite hazy and blurred together. I remember that the visuals were very strong and beautiful. I remember Jay asking several times what we liked to do while tripping. He repeatedly tried to initiate some sort of activity, whether that was music listening or playing video games. He must have been bored. But I was quite content admiring the visuals and getting lost in my own head. I remember stepping outside into the backyard and admiring the beautiful, sunny evening. I remember attempting to play Primus's Jerry Was a Race Car Driver on Rock Band with my electronic drum kit and failing quite pathetically. 
a song I've gold starred an expert. I remember sitting in the family room and seeing my brother stumble around and fall over. Now, this is where I should have noticed something odd, but I was heavily under the influence and lost in my own thoughts. I wrote it off as him tripping hard or perhaps being silly. I was stuck in my own head, experiencing thought loops where random people's names would repeatedly pop up along with visualizing Newtonian physics and molecules amongst many other odd physical effects. I recall sitting on the toilet, simply zoning out for what seemed like quite a while. There is a vague memory of Jay and my brother coming into the bathroom with me and staring in the mirror. My brother had a bit of a crazed, confused look and coloration on his face, which in retrospect must have been a little bit of blood. Next thing I know, I'm upstairs in my own room, starting to come down. The time must have been around 9pm, four hours after dosing. I tried lying down in bed as I was quite exhausted, but then I remembered my brother and Jay. For some reason, I felt very apprehensive about going downstairs to check on them. I was feeling creepy vibes and remember having morbid, negative thoughts. However, I ventured downstairs and saw broken glass all over the kitchen floor. I was very confused and extremely worried. I saw that the front room window blinds were still open and a mess, as if someone had run their hands up and down them. I quickly fixed the blinds and tiptoed over the glass into the kitchen. What I saw next may haunt me for the rest of my life. I saw my brother lying on his back in the family room with vomit trails down either side of his mouth. My stomach immediately dropped. Had everyone's worst nightmare become a reality? I turned him over onto his side. He wasn't breathing. His face was gray and his lips were blue. I looked over and saw Jay lying face down about 10 feet over, probably lost in his own thoughts. I screamed my brother's name, hearing my voice as I'd never heard it before. I frantically searched around for the nearest phone and dialed 911. The lady on the phone recorded my address, said help was on the way, and instructed me to perform chest compressions. Having been certified in CPR, I placed the palms of my hand on the center of his chest and began forcefully compressing to the beat of the Bee Gees, staying alive. Deep down, I had very little hope. He looked like he had been lying there without oxygen for at least half an hour to 45 minutes. The paramedics arrived within six minutes. He began applying chest compressions, then ripped open my brother's shirt and attached the electrodes from the defibrillator. Jay, meanwhile, had risen to a seated position and still seemed to be under the influence. He didn't say anything and displayed no sense of urgency. Feeling helpless, I watched in horror as the paramedic continued chest compressions. He uttered under his breath, Shit, he's bleeding. As blood began to seep out of my brother's mouth, I could not believe what I was seeing. Eventually, about 25 cops, firefighters, and paramedics had poured into the house while a team of people continued to attempt to resuscitate my brother. Not being cooperative, Jay was placed in cuffs and held down by a police officer. Jay still wouldn't speak except for a few high-pitched shrieks while resisting the officer's restraint. Officer sat me down out of view from my brother and began asking me all sorts of questions. I informed them of what we had taken 
not wanting to withhold information that could save my brother. After an excruciating, anxiety-ridden 20 minutes, my brother was carted off on a stretcher into an ambulance. The other personnel had done the same thing with Jay. Utterly shocked at the events that had just transpired and fearing the worst, I was escorted into an ambulance of my own. Upon arriving at the hospital, I received the news that I had most feared. They had failed to bring my brother back. All I could do was sit down in shock. What was supposed to be a fun bonding experience with my brother had turned into our last moments together. I feel such horrible guilt and responsibility for my brother's death. I knew the dangers of NBOME with its higher potential for overdose and problems with vasoconstriction. I falsely assumed that we would be safe since my brother and I had taken three tabs from the same batch before with no adverse health effects. We had even stepped down the dosage from last time. My greatest worry was a psychological crisis or someone leaving the house, not death. I did not know of all the seizures and heart issues that others have experienced with the NBOME series. I believed that my brother had a seizure and choked on his own vomit. However, the coroner stated that he had experienced an arrhythmia, which led to cardiac arrest and thus death. At the very least, I wish I could have known what had happened in those last moments. I wish I could have been there, lucid and ready to call for help. The house downstairs looked as if Motley Crue had destroyed the place in a drug-fueled frenzy. I imagined my brother was losing consciousness, stumbling and falling, trying to make sense of what was going on. He had minor lacerations, cuts and abrasions from the glass, and contusions on his head, arms and legs. I hope with all of my heart that he was not suffering in his last moments. I like to think that he was having the trip of a lifetime. Perhaps he talked to God. Maybe he saw the light. I have no idea if there is an afterlife, as I am not religious, and neither was my brother. But if there is, I hope he's in a peaceful place. He was the most kind-hearted, loving, carefree individual I have ever had the pleasure of knowing. I want this to be a cautionary tale for all of you out there. I am not writing off all psychedelics, but know that the NBOME series does not have nearly the same safety profile as other psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin. If you do choose to do this drug, expect the unexpected and prepare for the worst. Please have a trip sitter there for you. If any drug was to be taken that evening, I should have been sober and trip sitting. I would not wish this experience on my worst enemy. My four sisters lost a brother and my parents wept over their son's cold, lifeless body. Please be careful. It was a typical Saturday afternoon. A week prior, I had made plans with three of my friends to trip on some very potent liquid LSD we had picked up recently. I was given a serious warning from my dealer not to consume more than three drops. He sincerely claimed that the vial needed to have a warning label on it. His source had driven several hours to another city just to obtain the acid because it was such a wicked batch. It was supposedly barely diluted. 
Being my usual skeptical self, I decided I was going to ignore his advice and go balls deep to see what beautiful places my mind could take me to. My friends were very inexperienced with LSD for the most part. One friend, who will be called Jam, had tripped a total of seven or so times. Another friend, D, a single time, actually two days before this trip, and the other friend, Ka, was dropping for his first time for his birthday. The day seemed all too perfect for anything to mess up, despite the fact that during this time in my life, I had had a myriad of personal issues and insecurities that could possibly lead to bad experiences, but I didn't completely take that into account. I'm honestly starting to get slightly uneasy even thinking about the experience I'm about to describe. Around 3.30pm, one of my other friends named Kai, who was sober, picked me up from my house. He was with D and Ka, who were minutes away from consuming their acid. We drove to my other friend's house, where my personal stash of acid was sitting in the freezer. The LSD was dropped onto sugar cubes. Our plan was to drive to our friend Jack's house and enjoy the ride in a safe setting, while the people that opted not to trip smoked marijuana. I walked into his house and saw a couple of my friends there. We briefly conversed and smoked a bowl of top-quality CBD-rich sativa marijuana, an antipsychotic chemical in marijuana that reduces anxiety, for a few minutes as a way to ease me into my trip. Haha, <laughs> yeah right. I believe this is what made the come up so overwhelmingly fast. I pulled a whopping five sugar cubes out of the freezer and shoved them in my mouth, then licked a bunch of sugar crumbles off the foil which came from the edges of the 11 sugar cubes I had in my stash. My friends were a bit shocked I was willing to go that far, but they were already sort of used to my tendency to consume large quantities of psychedelic drugs. I talked with them for another 10 minutes or so, then I went back to the car. On my way to the car, I noticed I was starting to feel increasingly disoriented. It wasn't that euphoric, confusing sort of disorientation. It was more of a, I'm losing my fucking mind sort of thing. I felt slightly anxious, but I assumed the negative feelings would pass as soon as the acid took full effect. A couple minutes after I got in the car, D ate two sugar cubes and Ka ate one. I suspect this was easily around a thousand micrograms. I have consumed a hundred plus UG blotter that did not compare at all to this liquid. On a separate occasion, taking two of these was enough for a level 4 experience, hallucinations, ESP, and OBEs. This experience was about to get very, very ugly. To give a little perspective on the unfathomable effects of a thousand microgram doses, here's a quote from the Nobel Prize winning chemist Kerry Mullis that ingested a thousand micrograms for his first dose. When you take a thousand micrograms of LSD, you don't know you've taken anything. It just feels like that's the way it is. You might suddenly find yourself sitting on a building in Egypt 3,000 years ago, watching boats on the Nile. Yes, it is that fucking crazy. 10 minutes into the car ride and 20 minutes after eating the sugar cubes, I was rapidly losing all touch with reality. I started wondering what the fuck was going on around me and why I was feeling so uncomfortable. I started telling my friends I was really scared, and the intense anxiety was gripping every single fiber of my body. I thought I was going to die, and that this trip was going to last until the end of eternity. By the minute, I was starting to panic more. This was only the beginning of an unimaginable nightmare that would show me the evil side of LSD and completely change my opinion about the drug in general. 
25 minutes after taking the sugar cubes, we arrived at Jack's house. By that time, I was stumbling all over the place, and I was already having severe visual distortion. All movements were followed by strobing trails composed of detailed patterns, kaleidoscopes, and rainbows. These visuals that I would have, usually considered beautiful, were now viewed as a reminder that I was in the middle of a trip that I so desperately wanted to end. When I got inside his house, I saw a few more of my friends sitting on the couch. My body temperature had elevated to the point that I thought I was burning alive. I was completely out of my body and almost felt like I was on a high dose of ketamine. I felt embarrassed because I obviously looked like I couldn't handle my shit. Maybe this was just an extreme amplification of my general self-esteem issues. Their faces were assuming demonic forms. I fled to Jack's room. I was already starting to experience ego loss. I was going in and out of consciousness. This is the point where I lost track of time, so there's no point of trying to estimate anything. Jack followed me to his room and did his best to comfort me and talk me out of my bad trip. It was a completely ineffective attempt. A couple minutes later, I started crying hysterically. Everything was getting darker. I fell into the most depressive state of my life, combined with the most acute sense of panic I've ever experienced. The floor was covered in spiraling kaleidoscopes that were rapidly shifting colors. I heard thousands of voices call me names like pussy and bitch. The room reeked of sewage and feces. This was the most negative emotion a human being could ever fathom. I so desperately wanted to kill myself, but I was immobilized and unable to move. I realized that the voices were all the people I resented in my life the most. Cartoon blood was all over the ceiling and the walls. My vision seemed to stretch off into infinity. I was hallucinating so much, I couldn't fucking believe it. I could see many different events of my life playing out as if it was waking reality. Try and imagine being inside of a Saw movie firsthand, but a thousand times more horrifying and traumatic. There was a moment in which my mind would shoot out of my body two feet in front of me and then return into my body, and this looped over and over again for what felt like forever at an impossible speed. Time was non-existent and each second felt like forever, not hours, not days but an infinite amount of time. I kept hearing this bizarre futuristic noise that sounded like a computer glitching. The whole room was flashing, as if something was flicking the on switch for a lamp up and down repeatedly. My jaw was rapidly vibrating like I had taken 300 milligrams of MDMA. I had full-blown synesthesia. Everything was one. Everything was infinitely interconnected. I would look at the walls and become them. I would look at the floor, then become the floor, looking back at my body in a dissociative fashion. I was unable to differentiate any part of the outside world from my own physical body. The concept of I was now a mere construct of my mind, and I was nothing more than a complex bundle of atoms and molecules. The floor started to wither away and die. It was as if it had human emotions and was feeling every bit of suffering I was going through at the time. Everything started to turn blood red. I was going straight to the depths of hell. Matrix numbers were literally exploding out of the ground and shooting up and down the walls. I felt like I was on DMT, only it was a thousand times more intense. Somehow, 
just a little while after this part of the trip, I regained some degree of consciousness. I stumbled to the backyard where a group of eight or so people were sitting and I was watching the sky and everything in my external environment turning black and red. I could barely see anything. My vision was almost completely shot. I forgot that I even had a body at this point and I had absolutely no control over my muscular movements. I was in the survival mode where my mind was on autopilot and I had no idea that I was on drugs. I lost balance and fell backward onto the ground. I continued to see more incredible vortexes of matrix style numbers and letters spurred out from every direction. During my friend's attempts to help restore me to sanity, they asked if I knew what time it was. I responded with 8am when it was late in the afternoon. That was quite enough of a response to prove I was completely and utterly going nuts and there was no real way to help me. Once night fell, I was full on peeking in Jack's room. I began to literally have no idea who I was, where I was, or what drug I was on, or what drugs were in the first place. I knew that I was going to die and nothing could be done to stop it. At some point at the beginning of the peak, I realized that I could not recognize the room I was in. Suddenly, I started seeing several cop cars pull into the room and put their sirens on. Yellow caution tape magically appeared around them as well. This was one of my worst nightmares coming to life before my very eyes. There was a line of already arrested criminals in handcuffs next to the cop cars and they were all complaining that I would snitched on them for some unspecified reason. I knew I was in for absolute hell. Before I could see what was going to happen next, everything started fading to white. I could see nothing but burning white light like I was looking directly at the sun from a hundred feet away. What I saw was the ultimate truth, the answer to every question, the reason reality is the way that it is. I existed within the past, present, and future simultaneously. I couldn't see my own hand in front of my face. I dissolved into infinity. I was existing in an infinite number of dimensions, living in an infinite number of lives simultaneously for an infinite amount of time. Though my memory of this is hazy, I believe I relived every event of my entire life during the peak. I could fit our entire universe into a period at the end of a sentence. Time was a point of nothingness. I was everything, yet I was nothing. I was in pure ecstasy. I felt the unconditional love of the universe penetrating every pore of my body. If only this could have lasted forever. I suppose this was a taste of the beautiful part of ego death, but my stay in this ineffable place was cut short when I was suddenly catapulted into hyperspace where I experienced every ounce of pain any human being could ever possibly experience at one time. The love rapidly shifted to evil in its purest definition. I saw many miserable people I had seen throughout my life, including the homeless and starving. My brain sensory filter was gone. Every last bit of information that could physically be processed at once was flowing through my head at light speed. I was dropped out of hyperspace, directly into a hallucinatory prison facility. I saw hundreds of pit bulls, white supremacists, and naked black men running around. It was a state of sheer pandemonium. I have never been so unbelievably horrified in my entire life. I was now sure that this is where I would die. 
I was taken to the showers where I was bitten repeatedly by pit bulls and raped by the white supremacists and black men simultaneously. I was sobbing hysterically, screaming for it to stop. It was physical and emotional torture beyond your wildest dreams. I felt every single sensation, including their penises in my anus and the razor sharp teeth of the vicious dogs. Who knows how long this actually went on for, but eventually, this torture ended and I was back in Jack's room. I saw all of my friends' faces covered in knife wounds and deep, bleeding cuts. Puddles of blood were all over the room. My joints were still in severe pain from the physical torture I had just experienced. I looked at the clock and it read 9pm or something along those lines. Minutes after I came back to Earth, I realized that the purpose for human existence was to love. Love is our higher purpose. I now understood that the ego I had developed my entire life was an illusion all along. Our egos push us away from our ability to feel compassion towards others. As your ego fades away, you slowly dissolve into pure, unadulterated love. The illusion of separation created by our egos has been the root cause of suffering all across our planet. And sadly, this is the reason the majority of the world kills each other for absurd purposes like religion and resources. Religions like Christianity hide behind the idea that there is an afterlife because they are afraid of death. There is nothing to fear because when you die, there is no you to fear anything. The only thing that separates us from other forms of life is our ability to think. Our ego is composed of our thoughts. When we stop relying on our ego, we cannot experience negative emotions. When we stop thinking, our ego ceases to exist and then we can live a life of pure love, peace, and prosperity. The more we rely on our ego, the more we push ourselves away from the moment, which is all. Nothing inside the moment we are in right now will ever exist. Yesterday never is, and tomorrow will never be. Time is infinite. The past, present, and future are all occurring simultaneously. We are merely observers. Free will is an illusion. I quickly forgot all of these things within the 15 minutes of the peak ending. I did not fully understand the lessons I learned until many months after the trip. The next day was easily the worst day of my life, excluding the trip. I felt so self-conscious about myself that suicide was all I could think about. I was thoroughly convinced that I had ruined my life permanently. During ego death, I became aware of the severity of my many mental disorders. I realized that throughout my entire life, I had been looked down upon as a special kid. I had not been aware of this until that moment. I felt like I was the most inferior form of life on the face of the earth. After I got home, I burst into tears. I even thought my family felt sorry for me and had pitied me my whole life because they thought I was a moron. I had a psychotic break for weeks afterward. This was easily the most traumatic thing I have ever gone through in my entire life and has left a lasting mark on me that I carry to this day. It's been over six months now and I think about this trip every day of my life. It's nothing any human being ever deserves to go through and I would never wish it on my worst enemy. Over time, this trip has had a profound impact on all areas of my life in both positive and negative ways. The positive. 
I have very close friends now, and rather than the special kid, many people now view me as a very insightful and intelligent person. Before this experience, I had very, very few friends. I wasn't close friends with the ones mentioned in this report, but we chilled every once in a while. I now know what true friendship is. I go to parties. I meet new people all the time. I suspect I used to have a mild form of autism, and this trip literally eradicated it. My entire family has mentioned multiple times that I am a transformed person. I have fully developed social skills. I act normally now. I view everyone I meet as a part of my own consciousness. I've earned excellent grades in my community college and have grown tremendously. Multiple people have commented that I'm an entirely different person. I've taken up Buddhism and adopted a very spiritual lifestyle. The Negative Several months ago, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. I suspect I was already predisposed to this condition, but my trip brought it out. I still have mental flashbacks nearly every day and have been scarred by this experience. I frequently have nightmares about this trip. My thoughts can be very scattered and clouded at times. My thinking is very impaired on some days, but it's very sporadic. I've also learned how fucked up our world is, and sometimes, I feel that ignorance is bliss. Our society disgusts me. I do believe that the human race is a joke. I'm gonna say one thing. Do not take a high dose of acid unless you have a proper set and setting, or it can turn into the worst nightmare of your entire life. 300 micrograms is more than enough to have a spiritual experience. A thousand plus micrograms did not provide a near-death experience. It provided a beyond-death experience. LSD is a seriously powerful drug, and it has the ability to fuck a person like nothing they could ever conceive of. In fact, after this experience, I firmly believe it is the most powerful drug known to the human race. Dose, 450 milligrams, a couple days after a 900 milligram dose. Setting, college dorm, city campus, rainy night. Mindset, awful, broke up with my girlfriend the night before, was still half in denial. Aside from spending time with her, I had been generally bored with life and depressed for some time. Didn't know what to do with myself, desperately wanted to sleep, but couldn't. Drug experience beforehand. Three or four years of regular pot smoking, tried salvia once, mushrooms once, hydrocodone twice, and the previous summer took high doses of DXM as frequently as three times a week, until I couldn't keep it down anymore. That only took three months. Experience I was visiting my friend Steve at a college nearby, and we got bored and tried to find some drugs. A pretty typical night for us. I was especially up for it since things were not going well with my girlfriend and I wanted to forget about it. There was nothing around, so we decided to take some DXM for old time's sake, even though I suspected it would come right back up due to former addiction. So we went to the drugstore to find either some Coracetin or Robitussin. None there. None at the next drugstore, or the next one, amazingly. So Steve mentions Dramamine, and at this point I say, sure, whatever. We buy it and go back to read up on it. What we find is sort of frightening, but also intriguing. And we're not planning on going out, so there's no problem right? Also, we're so goddamn bored we're playing two-player card games. We each take 600 milligrams. Nothing happens for about an hour, so we take more. 
I took another 300 milligrams and I think Steve took another 450 based on how much was left over. And 90 minutes after the first dose, we get dizzy. Similar to DXM, but with less euphoria, if any. Definite mental confusion, but clear vision and sound so far. I can't walk straight, so I sit the hell down. For about two hours after that, Steve was seeing shadowy figures around the room, like mosquitoes inside the microwave, spiders on the wall, etc. But since I didn't see them, he knew it was just the drug. We just sat around evaluating the effects and playing cards. I had some slight movement in the periphery and nothing else. We both got very tired around three hours in and had to lie down. We were exhausted but couldn't fall asleep. It was incredibly frustrating. Steve kept saying, what? He must have said what 30 times over the next hour because he thought I had just said something, which I hadn't. I wanted to sleep so badly. Later, while I was still lying down, he was seeing his dog in the room and didn't realize it was a hallucination until later. Finally, the exhaustion passed and we sobered up. I was disappointed but took the remaining pills home with me. There were 9, or 450 milligrams. The next day, I broke up with my girlfriend officially. We had gone away to separate colleges, sort of agreeing not to have a long-distance relationship, but having one anyway. Then she met someone, and after a few weeks of denying it, I just gave up. She still wanted to be friends, which only made it more depressing. So here's where the real nightmare begins. I took the breakup really hard, and the following night around 8pm, I took the rest of the Dramamine. It was only half of the disappointing dose I had taken before, but I would have taken anything to get my mind off the ex-girlfriend. There was a hallucination about 4 hours before this dose, on no drugs, presumably residual from the first dose. However, by the time I took the second dose, I had completely forgotten about it, or just didn't care. I think I was still out of it from the first dose when I took the second dose, two days later, which will explain why a lower dose had stronger effects, and the fact that I was with a friend may explain why there were no hallucinations the first time. I'll go into detail about this one at the end. Anyway, the pills were halfway down my throat when some people down the hall invited me to a meeting they were going to. It was an NRA meeting, which didn't interest me, but I just went to be social and meet the people who live near me. In the middle of the meeting, I started getting dizzy and confused. I didn't want to have to interact with anyone, so I just tried to stare straight ahead and leave quickly at the end. I walked back to my room and sat down at my desk, glad to be alone. But a few minutes later, the RA came to the door because they were doing safety inspections that week, checking the windows, fire alarms, etc. It only took a minute, but as he was leaving, he said, Hey man, have you been feeling alright lately? And that made me a little paranoid because I hadn't been feeling alright, and I was pretty intoxicated at the moment, but I just told him I broke up with my girlfriend and I was alright. He said okay and gave me a paper to sign for the inspection. I didn't even read it, but as I was signing it, I saw the words, cocaine in a small plastic bag, handwritten at the top. I can't explain why I didn't ask him about it. I'd never even tried coke, let alone had any in my possession, but I did have alcohol hidden in my room. I was underage, and I wanted him gone, so I just signed and he left. On this drug, one can ignore things that seem impossible. After he left, I remember that I had a party the previous night, and some of the people there had some coke. I wasn't sure who or when exactly. It was as if I just knew about the party. In retrospect, I think this was a vivid dream from the previous night, which, in my mentally confused state, I couldn't distinguish from a real memory. I was a little worried about the repercussions of what had just happened with my RA, but he hadn't said anything, so I figured it would just go away. 
Just then, the phone rang. It was my mom. She just called to say hi, but she also asked if I was alright. It surprised me because I didn't realize I was outwardly depressed, but I said I was fine, and we got off the phone. Next thing I know, I hear my RA's voice out in the hallway, telling someone that there was a lot of illegal shit in here. I think, oh great, here they come to bust me after all, and I wait for them to come in, but they don't. Instead, I hear my family coming down the hallway. My dad sounds agitated, and he never gets agitated. Keep in mind, my mother had just called me from six hours away, but her voice was outside my door. That magic transportation didn't occur to me at all. I don't remember seeing them enter the room, but next thing I know, my mother is lying on the bed. She told me she had been sedated, and I assumed that she had heard I was taking drugs and had freaked out. I didn't even consider who had sedated her or who carried her in the room. She was groaning and lying on her face. Then I see my dad, perched in my desk chair-like. This is the best way for me to describe how I perceived him. I swear, a super intelligent monkey who had gone insane and was about to snap and go on a rampage. His eyes were bugged out and his skin was almost black and was keeping some kind of psychotic watch over my mother. Then, she managed to mumble that, when they're alone, my dad is always like this and he tortures her. In reality, my dad is extremely relaxed and agreeable. My younger sisters were also in the room, and although I didn't look at them, I sensed they were thoroughly bored with the whole thing. I also had the feeling that we were all waiting for someone to come in and tell us something, and that I wasn't allowed to leave. At this point, around 11pm, it hits me that, not only am I in big trouble with the school, but I might even go to jail, and even if I don't, I don't want to go home because my parents are obviously completely dysfunctional. I've forgotten that I even took pills by this point and I'm trying to decide what to do. I look over at my mother and her back looks strange. So I lean in and suddenly she becomes a pillow. Despite this, the hallucination continues. I really believe what another report said about diamond hydronate suppressing short-term memory. I lean away and she's there again, as real as anything, seriously. These people I saw looked strange, not to mention the way my mother was lying. I would have been sitting on her legs, but I wasn't any less sure that they were there. Then things get even weirder. I notice a small chubby man hiding in my clothes hamper. I just see his red face peeking out the top, and I look over at my computer and the side is taken off and the hard drive is missing. I figure my hard drive is being read now somewhere, and things start to feel even more serious. I wonder what exactly was found in here. I hear voices of men in the hallway, but can't make out what they're saying. Finally, someone comes in and starts reading from some papers he's holding. He tells me on such and such day, I search for pornography on the internet, and I think, what the hell, who cares? But he goes on and on, reading emails and AIM conversations, and I start thinking that there's going to be a trial, and I'm going to be made out to be some kind of sicko, and I'll be locked up forever. So I get to the point where I'm so shocked, angry, and creeped out that I decide to leave. I walked out in the hallway and looked into the next room and saw two guys in suits, one on a laptop and one sorting through papers, as if there's a whole team working on this. So I think, holy shit, I'm getting out of here. I go back to get my wallet and ID, my parents are there but I ignore them, and I see the guy in the clothes hamper looking at me. He's wearing a turban by the way. I think, man, I really need someone to talk to, so I say, hey how's it going, to my clothes hamper. He just sort of listens as I start to complain about everything that's happening and how unfair it is. I start to feel like this guy is my friend, so I say, Hey, you're not the judge by any chance, are you? 
He shakes his head. Then I feel bad for only talking about myself, and I ask him about his family, but he doesn't say anything. I say out loud, what the hell am I gonna do? He smiles and says, look under my hat. This all still seems very plausible to me, and very real. So I think, okay, there must be something under his hat that will help me make sense of all this. I walk over and take the hat off, but I can't find the inside of it. It unravels. It's just a towel. I look at his head, and there's a pair of underwear where his brain should be. I'm really confused, and I pick up his head, and it's just a pair of red pajama pants. The whole thing is just clothes, but a second ago it was moving and talking to me. Then I notice my family is gone, so I go back into the hall and I still hear voices. I close my door and decide to go find one of my friend's rooms and hide in there until everything blows over. When I get there, I knock on the door. It's about 1am now, but no one answers. I try to wake him up without drawing attention to myself, but no luck. So I go down to the lobby of the building and peek out slowly, as if the city's entire police force will be waiting for me, but there's no one there. At this point, it seems like that the hallucinations would be over and I start to figure out what had happened. But then I hear my dad's voice coming out of the elevator, telling me how much trouble I'll be in when I get home. So I figure I'm only being expelled, again, ignoring the inconsistency, and I decide just to run away. So I go outside in sandals and a t-shirt at 1am in November in the northeastern United States, in the rain, to run away on foot. I hear my parents behind me and now turn around and see them again, but I just keep walking quickly. The sound of them fades away, so I figure I'm losing them, but at this point, I start to see police cars parked everywhere, and every once in a while, a badge will gleam in the moonlight from behind a tree or some bushes. Now I realize that there are police everywhere, and I wonder why they're hiding and not approaching me. I think maybe it's because my hands are in my pockets. They think I'm armed. Doesn't make sense either. I keep walking and the cops follow me. I hear them shuffling along and keep seeing them hiding, watching me. I walk up past the frat houses and keep going until I don't know where I am. My hands and feet are freezing. I went through a bad neighborhood, but no one was out. Probably because there were cops everywhere, I thought, and I was so cold I decided I had to get somewhere familiar, so I made a loop back home. On the way back, I start to see my parents hiding with police, and I hear my dad saying, Watch out, he might run. I think it's strange that I can see and hear them hiding and waiting. It's like a cat going up to a mouse and just politely opening its mouth. So whenever I see them, I simply cross the street. Finally, I'm so cold and tired that I stop on the steps of the music building and sit down, curled up, just wanting to be caught. I see officers in the windows of the music building and creeping up behind bushes, so I just empty my pockets and hold my hands out and wait. I can see my family across the street. No one comes for 20 minutes. I pick up my things and walk back home, figuring if they don't want to catch me, I'm going the fuck inside. I get to my building and sign on a computer in the lobby. Steve is the only person online and I tell him what's happening, without mentioning the Dramamine, which like I said, I've forgotten. He doesn't consider it either, just can't believe what's happening. We hang up and I sit in the laundry room for another half an hour with my hands behind my head, reading the paper, still seeing cops creeping up behind things. It wasn't until I saw two real cops who walked by and ignored me that I even considered it might have been a hallucination. I cautiously went back to the room to find everything in its right place, about 2.30am, six and a half hours later, and was so confused that I called home. If they answered, it meant I was tripping and I'd be relieved. They answered and I told them the whole thing, 
I felt like an idiot for days afterward and worried that I would never be the same, but I recovered completely. Had some shimmering in the periphery for a few days though, especially against light backgrounds. Here's what happened that afternoon, which somehow I totally disregarded. I was reading or doing some work or something at my desk. I glanced up at the open door and hiding behind my door against the wall, I saw a little girl. She was standing still with no emotion in her face, just looking at me. It was a little creepy, especially since her entire body, including her head, was in the shape of a large narrow triangle. Her eyes were at the very top, and she had thin red hair that came down along the sides of her triangular head to where her shoulders would be if she had any, and her mouth extended across her entire face and was a straight horizontal line. Then her dress continued down the widening triangle, and just at the bottom I could see her shoes poking out. I figured, for some reason, that she had been running from something in the hall and ducked in here to hide. So I'd figured she's been through enough and I left her alone and went about my business, looking over every now and then to see if she was still there. Finally, after what seemed like an hour, I got up and very slowly walked over to her. I said hello, but there was no answer. When I got there, I saw that she was a towel on a hook. I touched it in disbelief and then put it down and continued going about my business. I didn't even bother thinking about it or telling anyone. I say, don't take Dramamine recreationally, ever. Unless you're already a paranoid schizophrenic, I have no history of mental illness by the way, and you feel you can use some more imaginary friends, or if you'd like to see your city hire more cops, or if your laundry is unsympathetic enough to you. Frankly, if I was your underwear, I'd expect you to sympathize with me. I am writing about my experiences with meth for two reasons. Firstly, my husband and I were able to remain healthier than most by doing relatively easy things with homeopathic remedies and over-the-counter meds that I'd like to relate to others who are using heavily. And secondly, I feel that perhaps if I honestly relate the grotesque and extremely frightening things that happen to us, I might be able to save those who have just begun the long farewell of the hunger strike. We first smoked meth on New Year's Eve because we heard it was great for sex. I had to work the next day, so I saved some to smoke before work in the morning. When I got home, another gram was waiting for me, and I smoked every day but one until we finally quit six weeks ago, March 20th. For three weeks, we smoked meth with little consequence. Then my skin became fragile, and in addition to breaking out, started to swell. I was really worried because I was constantly thirsty and drinking water, but I rarely urinated. I was afraid I was fucking up my kidneys and I'd be too sick to keep using. So I started taking one pamperin, over the counter for PMS, every other day because it contained a diuretic and a leave for swelling as needed. That worked for a week or so, then I had to take two pamperin every day, then three, until I realized my skin had become clay-like for lack of a better word, as if there were a layer of Play-Doh beneath it. I also noticed a powdery black substance, like dirt, was coating my skin, no matter how often I washed it away. We used a lot of mineral oil for massage during sex, or before sex, or after sex. Anyway, one day, I realized this black crap was literally pouring out of my husband's skin, from every pore, and not only his, but mine as well. We guessed that this was some toxin from the speed needing to be eliminated from the body, 
and figured out that it could be massaged out with oil or was released when we were hot and sweaty. We started using the sauna at our fitness center in the apartment complex where we live to try and rid our bodies of the toxins so we wouldn't have to quit doing meth. But despite how often and long we sat in the steam, we couldn't get rid of the swelling or the black shit in our skin. Then my kidneys started hurting, and his, two days later. I had lost 20 pounds in two months, and my husband had lost 30. And we'd read somewhere that rapid weight loss can cause kidney failure. Or maybe we just thought it made sense that if you lost that much fat, it had to leave the body somehow, and our kidneys just couldn't handle it. I was so afraid of what I was doing to myself, but I still didn't want to quit, and I was too afraid to go to a doctor to find out how bad it really was. At some point during a sauna, I noticed a whitish or grayish substance, similar to vegetable shortening, was coming from my skin in massive amounts, tablespoons of it at a time, looking like Play-Doh through a garlic press. I lost 8 pounds in an hour in the sauna, of retained fluid and the shortening crap that built up under my skin, which I can only guess was the fat I was burning. We maintained like this, sitting in the steam 3 or 4 times a day for an hour, swelling in between badly enough to cause bruising where the pressure built up. I slept every 3 or 4 days for an hour or so, and woke feeling rested. I would get weak and shaky and realize I'd eaten nothing in 48 hours. I had to keep a chart and check off at least one meal a day, plus a multivitamin, plus a protein bar. My scalp would swell up and I'd run my fingers across it, which would release enough fluid to make my hair wet. I kept having this feeling of waking up as if I'd been asleep or unconscious, only I'd either be at work, standing up, or driving. It was like I checked out for a few minutes and was totally confused upon checking back in about where I was or what I was doing or how long I'd been gone. It was like my brain rebooted and I had to figure out what the fuck was going on really fast because I seemed to be in the middle of helping a customer and he is looking at me strangely and oh, there's a credit card receipt printing out so I better hand it to him and pretend that I was just waiting for it the whole time and God, I hope I didn't just stop talking in the middle of a sentence or say something that didn't make any sense because I've done that before but only when I was at home alone with my husband. Just say thank you and have a nice day. And we did not want to quit. So we took our saunas and our vitamins and used preparation H for swelling and hydrocortisone for what we guessed was a heat rash. We took oral steroids, prednisone, which I'd been prescribed for asthmatic bronchitis but never took, to try and reduce the swelling. We massaged the shortening from each other's skin and forgot to eat and sleep. We fell asleep with burning cigarettes and with the meth pipe in our hands. I spilled boiling meth on my husband and he, who had never been violent before in five years, hit me for the first time and left bruises on my arm. He hit me again because he couldn't find his keys and left a bruise on my face. He could never find his keys. I started hiding little stashes of shards and forgot where they were and he hit me when I couldn't find the dope. I was an hour late for work every day. My husband wrecked the truck three times and we didn't want to quit. I forgot to feed my son one day. All we ever did anymore was fight and fuck. Thank God my son was in daycare because they fed him twice a day. He spent the rest of the time watching TV in the living room while we locked ourselves in the bedroom and he'd have to knock to use the bathroom, which we'd yell at him for doing. 
I'd send him to school in the same clothes three days in a row. I didn't care anymore. No one made sure my son went to bed, and he started acting up at school because he'd been up till 2am, which we yelled at him for doing. I fell asleep during sex, or worse, fell sideways into a dream state while semi-awake and I'd babble incoherently while we were fucking, but goddamn it felt good. Exquisite. I said it felt exquisite. Everything was either the highest of highs or the lowest of lows. No in between existed anymore. I had delusions, especially when I was hot. I would take the hottest showers I could stand for hours, trying to clean the cysts I now had under my scalp full of the gritty black shit. And it was difficult because I couldn't use soap anymore. It got under my skin and burned and bubbled in my eyes, nose, and throat for hours afterward. I couldn't drink soda either, same reason. I had delusions that my dealer was poisoning our dope because he wanted it all for himself, which in comparison to my other delusions makes sense. I had delusions that the black shit in my skin was some new form of dope, only producible by the human body, and my dealer was selling us tainted dope so my body would make it because he was going to come harvest the shit from me and turn me into a slave he would keep locked up and just feed meth in order to obtain this new drug. I figured my dealer was doing this to lots of people and that he'd keep me enslaved until I died from the meth. I knew it was killing me. I didn't care. And we didn't want to quit. We were banned from the sauna at our apartment complex because no one else could use it. Our sweat smelled so strongly of ammonia, it burned the eyes. It was caustic, and it burned our skin too. We had to cope with just taking really hot showers, which didn't work as well. I fell asleep in the hot shower one night and woke with blood pounding in my ears and too weak to stand up. The fatty shortening crap that built up under my skin seemed to melt enough to be excreted through my pores with little heat. But with a lot of heat, it seemed to melt enough for it to be all released because I was sitting in a pool of it. I gathered the strength to turn on cool water and then realized I made a terrible mistake when all of this crap that was still in my body had collected because of gravity in my pelvic region and belly suddenly congealed. It hurt really bad and I really had to pee, but I couldn't because a clot of it had congealed in my urethra. I eventually pushed it out and saw it in the toilet. Did I promise you grotesque? We aren't through yet. For days afterward, the shit came out of my eyes, ears, nose, and throat. It came out of my vagina. It was in my urine and feces. I swallowed it down continually and it made me gag. I spit constantly because it was in my mouth. I wiped it from my eyes and it ran from my nose. I still have no idea what it was exactly, only a guess that it had something to do with the almost 50 pounds total I had lost. I knew it wasn't a hallucination because I cleaned it out of the tub three weeks ago, and six weeks after quitting, it's still coming out of my skin. Less, much less, but still there. And I still didn't want to quit. I got lucky. My dealer got popped, and I crashed before I could hook up through anyone else. I slept for three days straight and then dealt with the worst of the withdrawals with coke, which I would not recommend because it works about as well as caffeine, which is to say, not very well. My husband and I haven't done any drugs at all for four weeks and things are slowly going back to normal. 
I find that Benadryl works well for the withdrawals. I just take as directed for a few days and sleep through it. My son is happy. He has his mother back and his daddy plays with him again. I'm happy because I'm not so afraid anymore, not afraid of my husband or of dying painfully in the near future. We are happy because we've nearly paid all the bills we neglected and have cable TV again. We are happy because we resemble the normal, healthy family we once were. But I still want it. I can't sleep tonight because I want it. I wrote this in all honesty, mostly to help myself, to remind myself why I don't want it. And I still want it. First of all, I will say that huffing gasoline was the most exciting, crazy, weird and best drug I'd ever done in my life. So far, I'm only 21. I've done ecstasy. It was wonderful. I did acid. It didn't work at all, no matter who I bought it from or how much I took. I never saw anything or tripped. It just felt like I was on a sailboat rocking back and forth. I've done weed, crystal meth, cocaine, and even crack. I did some shit that was supposed to put me into a so-called rabbit hole, but it never happened. Guess that was some fake shit. Demerol is good, only in the drip form. First experience. I am hanging with my female friend at our friend's house. Our two guy friends had left for a while, then came back. When they came back, they were laughing all over us, reeking of gasoline. We were like, what in the hell? We said, what the hell is wrong with you? And why the hell do you smell like gas? They started laughing, saying, Ha we've been huffing gas, man. <laughs> we thought that was retarded. We had never heard of getting high off of gasoline. Didn't even know that we could. They end up taking us down the road and doing it also, even though we thought it was superficial. We get to this huge parked 18-wheeler with a rig on it. We're on our way out in the boondocks aka the country and it's nighttime with nothing but one deserted road and woods all around us the two guys tell us to huff off of this gas tank opening on the big rig so we do when i did it all of a sudden my body starts feeling all tingly and warm inside after a couple of minutes the two guys started saying that there were aliens watching them and talking to them from in the woods nearby my friend and i laughed and thought it was funny then they dared me and her to take 10 hits off of it in a row, or huffs, so I did. After doing 10 in a row, I blacked out. In my head, I had died, and all of a sudden, I became a comma in a biblical sentence. I was going to remain as this as a punishment from God for the rest of eternity. Pretty crazy, huh? Then I started coming back to consciousness. I saw a black and white image in front of me of some old baseball player getting ready to swing his bat. Then I came to more and realized I was sitting on the ground with my arms wrapped around this person's leg, but it was just one of the guys bending over huffing off the gas tank. Experience 2 This is hard to put into words, but me and the same girlfriend were huffing. We were at this house that was vacant. We had the gas can sitting on the porch. We were leaning over, taking turns huffing it. At one point, my friend was leaning over, huffing off the gas can. I was really fucked up watching her. When she came up, she all of a sudden looked like a blow-up doll. 
It's like she was deflated, leaning over huffing, then inflated as she leaned or straightened upright. And when she was all the way blown up, this is so damn funny, all this birthday cake splattered on me. And all of a sudden, it was my birthday, and her and her sister, who was not there, had planned a surprise birthday party for me. All the trees and shrubs around us had these little lights at the base of them, and I was screaming for joy. Oh my god, how did you all do this? This is so cool! And my friend is all messed up too, doesn't even know what I'm talking about. All she does is just look at me and laugh, doesn't say anything, which keeps me going. Then some man comes out of his house from across the street and is like, Excuse me, are you guys okay? And me and my friend start stumbling off and saying, Yeah, we're fine. And he asked something about us drinking, I think, but I can't remember for sure. We had been screaming and yelling all excited over God knows what. Experience 3. This one is really hard to explain. Me and the same friend are huffing on the same porch at the same vacant house at night again. A ways into it, the gas turns into this cartoon-looking thing. I wish I could draw a picture because I can't describe it. It was almost like the gas can nozzle had turned into this dark red trumpet that it was talking to me out of. It started hopping around in the spot where it was sitting on the porch. It was as if I had been living this fairy tale story, and all of a sudden it brought me out of it to tell me what I was doing wrong in the story. My life. It was trying to tell me something very important. Then my friend turned into an angel and had been secretly watching me throughout my life and also sat with me on the porch to tell me what I was doing wrong in my life. I can't remember what the hell was said, but it freaked me out. Experience 4. This was around the beginning of me doing this also. I was at my house. It was only me and my mom. My dad had his boat parked out by the side of the house. There was a big gas can hooked to the motor. I was out there huffing it. At the time, my mom didn't know I did this. So when she came out there, she didn't quite understand why I was so fucked up. Well, she couldn't stop me. I was young and dumb. I was doing this in front of my mom thinking she wouldn't stop me. I had a piece of candy in my mouth when I started. Eventually when I got really messed up, she came outside and started saying something to me. I started yelling back. I was so messed up that I didn't realize there was a piece of candy in my mouth and thought it was my tongue that had came loose. It didn't disturb me very much. I just grabbed it out of my mouth and threw it on the ground. That was weird. Experience 5 I was outside by the boat again. This time, no one was at home but me. I was huffing and all of a sudden, the telephone pole at the corner end of my yard started talking to me. It didn't have a mouth. It was talking to me telepathically. It was placing thoughts into the subconscious part of my brain that I wouldn't know about or wouldn't come about until later on in life. Crazy shit. And the tree right in front of me, a crepe myrtle, was telling the telephone pole, no mouth but telepathically, that that is not allowed. You're not allowed to do that to someone. Some ancient rule or something. Anyways, I was looking down the street I started hearing these noises of cars riding over a metal bridge. Then I started hearing these sounds of a man saying, A silver told across the bridge. And what was happening is the street adjacent to mine had turned into a toll bridge. I had to pay a silver dollar to cross the bridge. I could hear people putting the coin in the slot and driving over it. I could even see the top bridge rails. 
I think that's what it was. Weird. Experience 6. I had a gas can and was chilling in my backyard. My backyard has a lot of trees and shrubbery, by the way. No one was home. I was lying out in the sun in my bathing suit. I was underneath the shade of a small sweet gum maple tree. I think that's the name. Huffing. I had the cordless phone out there too. So every once in a while, while I was huffing, I would accidentally hit the on button on the phone with my leg without realizing it. The operator would come on and instead of it saying, we're sorry, if you'd like to make a call, I would hear it as, O.R. Lee, then something something. Anyways, at one point, this frog hopped in front of me from behind me. Yes, it was a real toad. But in my head, I believed that I was some kind of witch and that the frog had come from me. I had created this frog and set it out into the wild. Experience 7 I was huffing gas with this girl I had met down the road that was into it too. It was a sunny day. We were huffing it out of a gas can. This was a gas can that had a tube that I could pull out of it. Well, I didn't know that this one was like that. So we were huffing, and I got pretty fucked up, again as usual. And I didn't realize it, but I began sucking the gasoline up through the tube thing and taking gulps of the gasoline. The girl I was with started slapping me on the back saying, what the hell are you doing? You're drinking that shit? And she took the gas can from me. I looked at her all funny. She had told me and was like, why'd you take my flower juice? And a few moments later, I came to and realized what I had done. I even remember drinking it, even though I didn't know what I was drinking at the time. There were these little white flowers all around us at the time, which would explain the flower juice thing. So we stopped. I don't know how much I had ingested, but it was at least two gulps. I don't know how I didn't die. I wonder how much I would have to drink to die. But in the next couple of hours, each time I burped, I tasted that damn gas. It made me want to throw up, which I probably should have. So one of our friends picked us up and they stopped by a gas station. I decided to get some cream soda, maybe put something in my stomach that would take away the taste when I burped. Well. Wrong idea. It did nothing but make me burp more and made it taste even worse. End of it all. What caused me to pretty much stop doing this is the sounds that I started hearing that weren't really there. I began to hear this low buzzing noise. It sounded like it was coming from the power lines above my head. I know it sounds crazy. Then what actually scared me out of doing it is this bamming noise. I kept hearing this noise in the distance. I couldn't place where it was coming from exactly. It sounded as if someone had a sledgehammer and was pounding on the side of a building that had aluminum siding. It didn't bother me when it first started, but the more I huffed, it got louder and sounded more closer, even though I couldn't pinpoint where it was. Finally, it dawned on me one day when I was kind of sober, and it almost made me piss my pants. There is a saying, you will hear me knocking at your door, Something like that. Well, that really got me to quit. I really believe that after a year and a half of huffing gasoline, God was knocking at my door. He was warning me. The sound of the knocking, which as months passed, became a gradually louder bamming sound. I couldn't have fun when I was huffing. The sound was so loud, it overtook all the hallucinations I would have normally. 
It came to the point where I really began to believe something was coming after me. I had no idea what it was, but it was creepy. I'd start huffing, and there it was, again, even louder and closer sounding this time. Whatever it was, it was going to get me, and I consciously knew this, so I quit. After a month or two, I realized that what it was, what I truly believe, was death knocking at my door, getting closer and closer. What happened to me about three months after I had completely stopped huffing gas and doing any kind of drug was unexpected. I first began to not sleep. I felt like I didn't even need to. I started to become delusional, exactly like a schizophrenic. I believe people I knew very well were actually undercover detectives watching every move I made. I can't go into all the details, but mainly I thought I was psychic and knew these things and all the colors meant something and so forth. I ended up going in the hospital. I got better after a week of being in there and got out, didn't do any kind of drugs or anything, yet I became even worse and not only becoming even more delusional, but began hallucinating, seeing and hearing things that weren't really there. So I went into the hospital again. I was then committed from that hospital to an institute for about six months. I did get better after the first month or two of being in there. I got out and have been fine ever since in that aspect. I even did other drugs and stuff, did not huff anything, and was fine. It's almost unexplained by the psychiatrist I've been to. It's the fact that I had quit huffing and did not do any other drug for about three months. Then all of a sudden, my brain decided to turn on me. I finally quit doing drugs and just stuck to drinking. It's been like that now for a few years. Now, I am a manic depressive. I will pretty much have to be on antidepressants for the rest of my life. And antidepressants don't even really do shit. They barely motivate me to get up out of bed and live life. I also have an anger problem now that has caused me to go to jail a few times and pay hefty fines. I can't handle stress like a normal person. My stress turns into anxiety and anxiety into anxiety attacks. For the past two years, I've been having chest pains in this one spot on the left side of my chest that I'm gonna probably need to get checked out when I eventually get a job and insurance again. I get ridiculously scared sometimes when I'm by myself. I get these brief feelings that someone is in the house with me. Therefore, I cannot live by myself. If my boyfriend isn't here one night, I have to get a friend or something to stay with me. Then I'm okay. My psychiatrist has said that the main cause of my problems is from the gasoline chemicals that I put into my body and brain. That screwed up the chemicals inside me, more than likely, for life. December 30th, 2019. I had just flown home after a three-month stint in a Florida rehab for Kratom, Adderall, and alcohol. I had put my family through hell that entire year, particularly my younger brother, who told me point-blank that he couldn't live with me. I had a finite time to get a job and move out. I had spent the previous four years playing bass and vocals in his pretty successful band up until that point, and although I'd finally gotten my shit together, I'd ultimately proven to be a completely untrustworthy individual. I quickly got a job at a local electronics manufacturer and re-enrolled in college as I had been studying electrical engineering and was close to having my associates. Hell, I even had a small business building guitar pedals at one point. 
Despite this, my immature brain at the time simply could not cope with the thought of how badly I'd fucked up. And instead of powering through this like an adult or getting put on some kind of SSRI, which in hindsight I needed badly, I remembered that there was one opiate supposedly far better and far more euphoric than Kratom, Tyaneptine. I had never tried it myself. In fact, my only experience with it was watching a mutual friend battle with it years prior. As fucked up as it is, what made me actually want to seek out this stuff was diving into r slash quitting Tyaneptine and reading a plethora of horror stories how hard it was to quit. The reason being was that I figured that this was reflective of how strong the euphoria was. This is a glimpse into how weirdly autistic and immature my brain works when put under stress. I didn't want this stuff being shipped to my house unless I absolutely had to, so I googled around to see if any sketchy shops sold it locally. To my surprise, there was a small business on Google Maps listed in Kenosha called Tyaneptine Friends, which had a website and was open 24-7 located in Kenosha, Wisconsin, just an hour or so from my house in Chicago. Curious, I called the number and a sickly high-pitched male answered in that stereotypical junkie drawl. I told him that I wanted 3 grams of sodium and 3 grams of free acid. He told me to drive to a specific speedway in a kind of seedy area of Kenosha. Despite giving him an hour heads up and telling him when I was leaving, he had me wait in that Speedway parking lot for over an hour, which would become a semi-frequently recurring theme in the months to come. When he finally pulled up, I was greeted by the most smelly and disheveled man I had ever seen. I'm serious, the vast majority of homeless people I see walking around the streets of Chicago were more well-kept than he was. He was also one of the most fried pieces of literal shit I have ever met. I remember thinking that he looked a lot older than his voice would lead you to believe. He looked like a post-methelmer fud. I got my shit from him, paid, and then left. Effects-wise, I loved it more than heroin and every other opiate I had tried up until that point from the moment I felt it. It had a more uplifting, less downer feeling to it. I started using every day to ironically numb the constant thinking of the results of my previous shitty decisions. A couple weeks before the pandemic, I started renting out a band practice rehearsal space in the west side of Chicago with 24-7 access. When the pandemic laid everyone off, I had ample free time to get high and play my absolute nuts off for hours at a time. Though I technically shared this space with a few other bands, the pandemic canceled all shows for the foreseeable future and I was the only one using it. My existence for the better part of the next six months was as follows. Wake up. Eat Tyaneptine free acid, drive to the practice space, get more high, practice drumming for hours, occasionally record songs on guitar, and just generally bum around the space until I fell asleep there. I only really left the spot to pick up more Tyaneptine from Kenosha, go home to shower, or donate plasma for Tyaneptine money. While under the influence of other opioids, music didn't seem to interest me at all, but with Tyaneptine, I would often get lost in music that I'd long since forgotten about. If timed right, taking a quarter spoonful of free acid after scoring and blasting language by the contortionist as I hit the highway on my way home made the music like the first time I had heard it. Even though I'd long since stopped giving a shit about that specific kind of gen prog stuff since I started getting into good music and stopped being a teenager. Very early into the pandemic, one of my best friends, who was also my bandmate at the time, fucking died less than 8 hours after our last conversation. I promptly used this event to justify my stupid behavior going forward. Tyaneptine has this weird effect on me where it actually gives me energy, enough to drum along to insanely fast and complicated songs for literal hours, especially when combined with 4-fluorophenibut. 
Nobody in the family really suspected me of relapsing because I was very in shape from the drumming, ripped in fact. There was a period of this summer when I tried to quit by using Suboxone, only to discover that subs give me all the bad effects of opiates and strip me of all my motivation to do anything productive. Like Kratom, it left me feeling flat and unable to enjoy music. After weaning down and attempting to jump off at around 2 milligrams, I was left unable to sleep days on end unless the following criteria was met. Be drunk, fuck the hot-ass 19-year-old with thick hips and mommy milkers that I'd recently met, and chase it with a trazodone melatonin sandwich. No, like, I literally was unable to get more than 2 hours of sleep at night prior to having sex with her. After that, I got a solid 7. Being that I literally needed to fuck her in order to sleep, she rose to the top of my hierarchy of needs, which led me to being way clingy and scaring her off only a couple weeks into our thing. Shortly after she cut me off, I was in the parking lot of a Mexican restaurant in Round Lake when two guys started shooting at each other, with me directly in between them. After hightailing it out of there, I took this as a sign that life sucks and therefore I will get more Tyneptine. I then started using Tyneptine again. Later that month, my smelly Tyneptine friend informed me that he had 3-chlorophenibut powder on hand, which is the active ingredient in baclofen. I wasn't using the fluorophenibut more often than a couple times every few weeks at the time, but decided to give it a go one day. Thing is, he neglected to inform me that without a tolerance, 50 milligrams is enough to put you on your fucking ass, which without a very good scale, is impossible to measure. I scooped what I thought was a very small amount on a butter knife and ate it promptly blacking out and waking up 23 hours later with puke on my floor. I estimate that I must have taken at least 200 milligrams. When I finally regained my composure, I felt as if all mental barriers that existed for my CPTSD and generalized anxiety had faded away for good. I was completely present, not dissociated and clear-headed for what felt like the first time in my life. A very specific idea for a song came into my head that I couldn't get enough of which sounded like a triumphant crescendo from hell. After getting on my phone, I received news that on the literal day and location that I went to go pick up my drugs, Kyle Rittenhouse had gunned down an associate of mine that frequented the same music scene I was involved with during the infamous Kenosha protests mere hours after I had left. Well, shit. The experience that made me quit this shit for good. It began like any other time I scored. I drove out to Kenosha and picked up approximately $75 worth of Taya free acid and eyeballed a small amount on a plastic spoon before gulping it down and getting on the highway back home. I felt completely normal until stepping out of my car, which is when it hit me. Now, before I go on to explain what happened next, I have to emphasize that I had an extremely high tolerance for this crap, and anyone who has taken too much Tyneptine will tell you that it has sort of a ceiling effect similar to Kratom, and that you just feel woozy and maybe throw up worst case scenario. This is not what happened. Upon stepping out of my car, I became extremely disoriented and found it very difficult to stand up. It felt like my driveway was slanted. It's very hard to explain exactly what this sensation was like, but I pretty much knew right then and there that I was fucked. I felt a pervasive sensation of needing to yawn, but it was to the point of being painful. I went inside and tried to convince myself that this was simply just a panic attack. Pacing around the room, attempting to meditate, all the while I was getting more and more dissociated by the minute. I did some push-ups and smoked a cigarette, which is when I realized that my heart rate was extremely high. I called my dealer, asked him what the fuck was up, and if he cleaned the scale used to weigh my shit. I asked him if I should go to the hospital, to which he replied, 
they wouldn't know how to deal with what you're going through. He actually suggested to come over to his house and let his equally fried dumbass of a wife monitor my heart while I slept. I tried explaining that I couldn't see straight at all and I was losing my basic motor skills more and more by the minute. Like, even if I was dumb enough to trust his RC fried ass self with my life, there wasn't any way that I had the coordination to drive all the way back to Kenosha with my progressively deteriorating state. Possibly foreseeing what would happen next, I opted not to sleep in my room and decided to try and wait this out on the couch in the living room, just in case this became an emergency situation. Surprise, surprise, it did. I don't remember any of this, but apparently, my dad found me passed out on the couch and didn't think much of it until he nudged me to wake me. I promptly stood up, passed out, and hit my head on the floor. Cue the next thing that I actually remember. On the couch, I was surrounded by paramedics and unable to control my limbs. I was frantically flailing my arms and unable to stay still despite the paramedics asking me to. I felt trapped in my own body. What did you take? One paramedic asked several times. All that could come out of my mouth was a multi-pitched, What? I said this multiple times, all while flailing about and scaring the ever-living shit out of my family. My dad truly thought that this was the time that I, his first son, was going to die, or worse, permanently fuck my life up into becoming handicapped via severe brain damage. According to the hospital records I requested, this is when they sedated me with ketamine to calm me the fuck down. This caused me to have a very vivid dream that seemed to last around two weeks involving me, one of the nurses, and driving around Bensonville in my van. In all reality, I was only out for about a day and a half. My coma dream was then interrupted by me waking up and projectile vomiting on the floor next to my hospital bed. I was in full-blown tyneptine withdrawal and in the ICU. The nurses started asking me questions, and my answers to a lot of the basic ones like the date, my name, and the president, I either got wrong or took me too far long to figure out the answers to. For some reason, I refused to tell them about the tyneptine that I took, despite being pressed about what drugs I had taken, out of fear of retaliation from my father. In hindsight, these fears were completely unfounded for a multitude of reasons, but I was still fucking delirious from whatever the fuck I took. I couldn't remember my father's phone number, despite knowing it by heart since I was 10 years old, and I was hallucinating very strange things which were compounded by the fact that I didn't have my glasses in there. Shortly after vomiting, I began having the absolute worst pain in my lower back to the point where I was screaming my fucking head off. The nurses told me to pipe down, but I physically could not. Now, I spiral fractured my tibia and fibula at 14 when skateboarding which hurt like a bitch but the pain I was currently feeling in my back was somehow a thousand times worse. I've never had a history of self-harm, but I began violently biting and scratching my arms and hands to the point of drawing blood just to get my mind off of this pain, all while screaming bloody murder. This went on long enough for them to actually restrain my arms to the bedpost. I then started screaming stuff like, Give me opiates, please! Fuck! Fuck! Die! Please give me some fucking morphine! But a lot of it! I have a high opiate tolerance! Fuck! They eventually relented and gave me two 10 mg hydrocodone, which I promptly chewed up and tossed back. After that, the pain still wouldn't go away. I continued screaming until they gave me Haldol, which knocked me the fuck out finally, but not before forcing all the piss out of my body and all over myself because I couldn't piss into the bedside cup thingy when prompted for some reason. The next day, I was approached by a hospital psychiatrist who asked me the questions you'd expect. 
Had I tried to kill myself? Did I have any active thoughts of hurting myself or others, etc.? When she asked me if I experienced hallucinations, I distinctly remember seeing the blurry outline of what looked like a man on a horse right around my hospital room, hop onto the psychiatrist's clipboard, then under my bed. No, I replied, though this wouldn't be the last time they would come around and ask me questions along those lines, which I will get to later. I spent a total of six days in the ICU, and my memory is a bit fuzzy as to the order of the following events I'm about to describe, but I'll do my best to do so chronologically. My blood pressure was extremely elevated, and at one point, I asked if I could walk myself to the bathroom. My cardiovascular system was so fucked that I almost passed out after trying to stand up just for a few seconds while the machines monitoring my blood pressure went haywire. I opted to lay down and piss in the cup for the time being. You know, you almost died, is what one of my bedside nurses told me. At one point during the night, a patient in the room next to me needed resuscitation. A hospital worker then grabbed the biggest defib paddles I have ever seen and attempted to revive the person. He then walked out of the room looking down at the floor, clapped the paddles together which created a shower of sparks, and walked off. Thinking that it may have been a vivid dream, I asked a doctor the following morning about it, and as it turns out, that really did happen. The dude died. Another fucked up thing I saw that I'm not entirely sure if it happened was seeing a guy with the full leg cast at the end of his foot stuck in one of the hospital doors that had started to lift him upwards and off his mobile stretcher. The whole staff was trying to free him as he was screaming. As this was happening, the TV in my room was playing a live feed of an x-ray view of the guy's leg as this was going on. After they finally managed to free him from the door by essentially forcing his leg to do the front splits, he started screaming and writhing in pain as a live feed of the internal parts of his leg showed a replay of something snapping in there. He started screaming and writhing in pain as the live feed of the internal parts of his leg showed a replay of something snapping in there, just over and over like a sports recap, an x-ray view of this guy's leg snapping. I remember this way too vividly, dream or not. I was experiencing the worst mental agony and physical pain of my life while in there, albeit not nearly as bad as when I first woke up. I was able to get fed a couple more round of Norcos to subside my withdrawals after I finally told them what I took. I was also told that my blood was sent off to poison control. A funny thing about opiate withdrawal that nobody seems to talk about is just how horny you get. This is due to the fact that while in active addiction, opiates actually tank your testosterone and make you not want to jerk off or even seek out sex. So when you quit, the opposite happens. Three or so days into my stay, I couldn't handle it. Being in the ICU, you have a nurse in your room 24-7 and I didn't want to be a complete degenerate by blatantly jerking off in front of them. That being said, they were on their phones or work computers 99% of the time and not actively looking at me. And with my newfound sensitivity in the crotch area, I was able to adjust my blankets in such a way where you couldn't tell that I was moving at all and come into prepared tissues in 20 seconds or less stealthily as fuck. I probably jerked off a minimum of 10 times a day for the remainder of my ICU carrier and never got caught or make a sound even. One of my greatest achievements in life, probably above my engineering degree. Are you proud of me, dad? Another side effect of opiate withdrawal is the return of creativity. I was coming up with mad song ideas, lyrics even. I wanted nothing more than to come home and play more stupid goofy avant-garde on my H-string. I realized on that hospital bed that while in active addiction, I was simply going through the motions when it came to music. I wasn't playing to play, hell, I barely recorded. I was just getting high and seeing how long I could maintain a 260 beats per minute blast beat while modifying pedals to make the kick drum mic in the practice space go through a compressor like a crackhead. 
I had several deep conversations with the various nurses in charge of keeping an eye on me, which made me realize how grateful I should be to be alive. One of them described how they survived a famine in Poland during the collapse of the USSR, and upon landing in the United States, she actually teared up at the sight of all the food inside of the first grocery store she went inside of. Another was from Northern Africa, where a civil war was currently taking place and the rest of her family was in constant danger. A third told me how an adverse reaction to a flu shot landed him in the ICU for a whole eight months, and how he basically finessed his way out of having to pay a dime out of the seven-figure hospital bill without it affecting his credit. At some point, I was approached by another hospital psychiatrist who asked me the same round of questions, and being that I was at the lowest point of my life and finally able to cry due to not being numbed out, I started to sob like a little baby and told them about how much I wanted to kill myself and that I was sexually assaulted when I was six. Because of this, I was discharged to the psych unit for a mandatory 72-hour hold after I was finally able to walk and my blood pressure returned back to normal. In the psych ward, I met a bunch of cool people who I still talk to, a fat dickhead who I ended up triggering, and most dishearteningly, a childhood friend of mine. This friend of mine had previously been missing for over two years out of state after having a mental break. This friend, who I reconnected with in our later teens, was always doing and selling hella drugs. Sometime after we reconnected when we were both 21, he apparently became a completely different person. After going MIA in California circa 2017, he had apparently become a meth-addicted vagrant on top of showing signs of severe schizophrenia. The person that stood before me in the psych ward in September of 2020 was not the same person I grew up with skateboarding when we were 12. Hell, it wasn't even the same person I did acid with in 2014. What stood before me was a wide-eyed, Sid Barrett of a man who would talk to himself when alone in his room and laugh like a maniac. During lunch, he would chew his food with his mouth open and sometimes not even use utensils like a fucking animal. This deeply disturbed me. At one point during group therapy, the therapist had a prompt and all of us would then answer it one by one. The prompt, if you had a magic wand it could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Standard group innocuous therapy stuff, right? Wrong. When I got to this girl who I started befriending in there, she said that she wished that politicians would actually get stuff done. I piped up and said that the reason they don't currently work is because they're all pedophilic boomers who deleted all semblance of neuroplasticity by doing too much coke in the 80s. This made everyone laugh including the therapist, all except for this one fat kid. He started going off on this gigantic tirade that went along the lines of, I don't think that's funny man, you're saying that these politicians, who swore on the bible, are doing drugs? I'm in a secretive youth group for future leaders, we've met all the politicians. Fuck you, you're a piece of shit. He started punching walls and walking towards me. What was I thinking as this was happening? I was laughing my ass off, but a tad bit worried that if he swung at me, my PTSD and years of jujitsu would kick in and then I would have to deal with a fat kid with a broken arm and potentially more time in that hellhole. Before he could swing at me, the therapist pushed the panic button and he was promptly scooped up by security and a doctor. They booty juiced him and the next time I saw him a few hours later, he was in a howled all days as he packed his stuff to be transferred to a higher security psych ward. Fucking idiot. Anyways, after my 72 hours was up, I was promptly set free and never touched that shit again because opiates are for pussies. Later in life, I ended up getting addicted to phenobut and amphetamines like a real man, but that story is for a different day. This experience traumatized me very deeply. For the next year or so, I began to have this reoccurring delusion where I was absolutely convinced in the back of my mind that I was still in that coma in real life due to how vivid the initial coma dream lasted. I ended up writing a song about this experience as well. 
For those interested, I'll put the link in the description. As of writing this, I finally kicked all substances and am 47 days sober after finding psych meds that help me address my CPTSD and depression without resorting to terrible decisions that inevitably lead me to ruining my life and almost dying. I have also received a formal diagnosis for autism spectrum disorder, which in hindsight was very fucking obvious to everyone but me. This event happened a few months ago at the time of writing this. It is the report of the time where I nearly died from a bad pill and had numerous side effects for months afterward. This was one of the worst experiences of my life, yet very profound in its impacts now. Be careful when taking drugs. If you stay till the end, you'll see why I should have been far more careful. Backstory prior to the experience. This experience happened sometime in March 2017, just at the end of winter. I was a young kid at 15 years of age, new to substances that had psychoactive effects, yet I already had my mind set out on a mission to explore the limits of the realm of consciousness, the goal being to try DMT to challenge my nihilistic viewpoints of the entire world and concept of life. Ecstasy was meant to be a stepping stone to get there and at the time would be only the second drug I had ever consumed, the first being weed, in which I had only started using the previous December, so the whole process was certainly rushed. Pre-consumption. Me and two friends, we'll call them M and L, were interested in trying MDMA and planned on taking some when me, them, and some other friends came around my house for the night. Finding the right dealer took a while, but my usual plug ended up telling me that he could sell me pills, but no powdered MDMA. I believed this to be fine, as prior to the experience, I had been treating the substances as the same during all my research of the substance. I ended up buying two pills, as it was all I could get, but my research was lacking, and I had no idea what to look out for in pills of E, to check if it was all good, etc. Research was lacking in general, the pills were red bricks and were incredibly hard and tough to break apart. The day came and we decided to first meet some friends at the park to smoke some dank and drink a lot of vodka. Me, M, L, and two other friends named J and F headed back to my house. But after J had stated some dangers of bad pills, M and L tapped out of taking some of the E. However, I believe the chance of a bad pill would still be very unlikely and I needed to feel this insane happiness and take myself closer to curing my nihilistic view on life. Fuck it, I said, and decided I would take it anyway. The experience. At 1am, I thought the alcohol was out of my system enough so that I could take the E and have it kick in after the alcohol would have had the potential to dehydrate me, a very rough and uncalculated assumption. Some people were starting to fall asleep due to the weed and me and F were the only ones still moving about and agreed that I should go for it. Note, the following effects I believe are due to the pill being very bad and not actual MDMA, although I can never be certain. I first started with just a quarter of the pill, just to test for any bad reactions. After a half an hour, I took another quarter, barely containing my nerves and excitement. Nothing had happened yet. After an hour and a half passed, I was still feeling nothing, so I gobbled up the rest of the pill hoping I would actually feel something. Now, as soon as the pill was down my throat, it hit me like a freight train. 
I was sitting on my floor and was immediately swept away by the intensity, which I hear is uncommon on ecstasy for such a rapid come up. There wasn't even a come up really, just a very warm feeling in my neck, like electricity sparking through my spine for a few minutes before being catapulted from my normal mind state. As I sat on my floor, a concerned brief thought of, holy shit, this is only the first dose, entered my thoughts before being quickly swept away by the overwhelming sense of euphoria. I felt amazing, the most incredible feeling ever, barely able to move. Expressions of intense pleasure stricken across my face. I have memories of about two minutes of my experience being this joyful before it goes hazy and then hellish. After a few minutes, I was passed out on my floor. The turning point. I awake on my floor, uncertain of the time that has passed, but I'm lying down with my headphones still on, not playing anything. F is falling asleep, assuming I had just been listening to music. I drift back into consciousness and open my eyes. Two things then terrified me to a state of grief and worry I have never experienced again in my life. As I drift back in, there is a pain in my gut, a pain so grueling and intense and disgusting I can barely recall it, a feeling like my intestines and gut were dissolving inside me. I look at F and the whole room is shaking. Due to my poor research, I was unaware of the eye twitching side effect. However, after discussing these eye shakes with others, they sound far more intense. These eye shakes started happening uncontrollably and so fast that it was impossible to make out anything in the room. I shake F's leg and he wakes up and I look at him with my eyes spazzing out like mad all the way side to side 40 times a second for 10 seconds before a one second break. The eye shakes were happening side to side. However, for me, the whole world was moving up and down which was slightly disturbing. This shit freaked me the fuck out and F wakes up Jay and they look at me discussing what to do. F is a great guy but was laughing uncontrollably. Jay looks scared shitless. I watched them talk yet couldn't hear a word spoken. The whole world had gone silent. Battling death. Here's where the trip gets weird, very weird. Without thinking, I crawled out onto my balcony but what is odd is the fact I hadn't registered the last two minutes at all in my head. I had no idea about my eye shakes and couldn't register the gut pain. It was as if my body was reacting to the stimuli, causing me to be terrified, yet my ego was so disassociated that I was unaware that anything was wrong, or perhaps I was just too euphoric still. Almost like primal instinct, I shoved my fist into my throat without a second's hesitation and throw up. That was the precise moment in which I snapped back to reality, realizing exactly what was going on and suddenly feeling a lot less fucked up. This was real. I was horrified, fully aware of the pain now and aware that I was in serious danger of dying. I forced myself to throw up again. M is now awake. L won't wake up when F tries. My friends don't call an ambulance, being afraid of the situation and the fact that my mom was sleeping upstairs. I didn't think this would be happening. Jay runs into the kitchen and brings me an apple as a placebo, telling me it'll make it go away. I eat it and it causes me to throw up more. Throwing up, mixed with the insane levels of adrenaline from realizing my own situation in the most surreal way imaginable, helps me hang on and fight. My friend keeps bringing me apples repeatedly, yet I only ever remember eating two. They bring me orange juice and I drink two liters of it, 
but only remember taking a gulp and deciding it didn't help. Due to the commotion, my mom comes down the stairs and out to the balcony. Unaware of what was going on, she screams at me to get inside and drags me through the doors as I stare up at her with eyes wider than I can physically force them to go, still shaking. As I stared up at her pulling me in, I realized she had no face at all. She looked exactly like Slenderman, her face melting off constantly. She leaves and I look up to the wall of my living room. Across the whole wall is an image of a supply drop from the game Call of Duty Black Ops 3. They come and go across the wall, opening up as they do. However, instead of containing the usual cosmetics for the game, they are instead Snapchat stories from people I know at school. Each of them a black image captioned, Pray for Josh, with an emoji of interlocking fingers, over and over and over again. I was convinced that these were entirely real, and people were posting this on Snapchat at 4am, within minutes of me starting to die. I was so convinced that when I later checked Snapchat that night to find no one had posted it, I was confused beyond belief. And at that stage, I wasn't even as out of my mind anymore. But anyways, back to the story. I'm starting to feel like I'm not going to die anymore. And although still fucked up, my mental state felt pretty normal now due to the insane levels of adrenaline. My memory is missing parts, but now that it's four, I'm pretty sure I'm going to live. My friends start trying to sleep. I'm forever grateful for them for what they did that night. I truly believe they saved my life by inducing the vomit with the apples, so the apple became a metaphor for my lifeline and my savior. I ask for them to stay up and talk to me to keep me grounded, but they have been for ages, so they tell me to chill out to my music. The soundtrack of hell. I put on my music and shuffle the playlist I had, and what I was about to hear was the darkest, most hellish thing imaginable, causing shivers down my spine whenever I heard the songs I listened to for months after the experience. I have since experienced ego death on acid, along with various other intense experiences using substances and without them. Yet this was by far the most intense, strange, and reality-bending experience I've ever had. The three songs I remember listening to were as follows. Doom, Crosshairs, and King Ghidorah, The Fine Print and Ma's Def, Auditorium. As I listened, I could recognize the song, yet the music sounded distorted and entirely different. The strangest bit, however, was the vocals. They came out clear enough for me to hear each word, however the way they were strung together was so incredibly alien that none of the lines made any sense whatsoever, complete gibberish every second. I do not understand how this worked, but no matter what words I heard, there was no possible way I could have ever deemed it to make sense. It really felt like the whole world and my sense of reality had slipped away from me, and nothing could keep me grounded to a sense of what was real. The gibberish lines were so confusing and odd, yet the rapper sounded so natural in saying them that the cringe sent shivers across my body. What made it even stranger was the tone and rhythm of the words. It was all said in a monotone and monorhythmic way, the words coming out in the same pattern every line before the last syllable of each line was stretched out and given a pitch similar to that of someone saying, NOW, as a TV host. This tone caused some crazy closed-eye visuals, as I could constantly see a cartoon version of the rapper MF Doom standing on a stage in a quiz show moving his mouth to the words before my perspective shifted to show the night sky and a giant balloon of an evil clown towering over the whole festival that the quiz show was at, over and over again. 
The second song talks about battling the rapper's enemies as if he were in medieval times, and the concept of a rap being about medieval times whilst not understanding that it was a metaphor was the most surreal thing ever and confused the shit out of me. The third song's chorus made it seem as though people were jumping around in my headphones talking right in my ear, left to right. It's impossible to fully describe, but the sheer weirdness of this music was ridiculous. Time passes and I'm feeling better. Ella's woken up and realizes what's happening due to me mopping up my sick on the balcony. He hugs me, and it allows me to feel my heartbeat racing at 150 beats per minute, even after hours have passed and I'm no longer feeling scared. I notice that I've been running my hand through my hair the whole time, pulling out hair from the front to relieve stress. It's impossible to sleep. My eyes are still naturally as wide as physically possible, and I'm not tired at all. I end up going on Snapchat and briefly put up a message on my story thanking JNF for saving me before taking it down upon realizing it made no sense and I didn't want people to know of this experience. When I discover the Pray For Josh Snapchat stories aren't actually posted by anyone at all, I'm confused beyond belief. I wait out the remainder of the night, which actually passed pretty fast. In the morning, two friends from the night before came around for breakfast. As we're sitting in my front room talking to them about what happened, I repeatedly trail off, staring to the distance unknowingly, not thinking about anything, and pulling my hair. This was a tick that lasted for around two months after the experience. The morning actually has me feeling very happy and refreshed, unlike any sort of come down. This is probably due to the feeling of beating death. I managed to sleep later on. PTSD and complete insanity. If you have made it this far, thank you for your time. What I'll touch upon now is the after effects of the pill which was deemed by a psychiatrist as likely to be PTSD, no diagnosis. It may be hard for me to recall every effect I had long term here, but I'll do my best. The first side effect that was apparent were certain tics that I had. I would constantly go blank in my mind and stare into the distance for around two minutes at a time, even if around other people. The experience was actually pushed from my mind relatively quickly, but due to the various flashbacks, I definitely hadn't gotten rid of it. I was just putting on a show where I tried to act normal. I wasn't normal. The concept of what ideas were sensible and realistic broke down completely. Within the first few days, I developed a belief that I was actually in a coma and needed to wake up. Every night when I fell asleep, I would hear people such as my family and friends talking to me, wishing me to get better, etc. Sometimes it felt so real that when I shut my eyes, it felt as though my mind was elevated upward so far that I reached the real world briefly and could even see the people sitting beside my bed. I remember exactly where my hospital bed was. For some reason, it was in the same building as the county building responsible for parking permits, etc. I have no idea why, but I believed I was in a hospital bed there. The nystagmus or eye twitches stayed present for a few weeks after the experience. A lot of the time, open-eye nystagmus was uncontrollable, and for even longer, every time I shut my eyes, they twitched inside the sockets, rubbing against my eyelids. It was hard to sleep. Most effects seemed to come in cycles of two weeks, lasting briefly then disappearing, and I briefly also had extreme paranoia. Another side effect was the inability to talk reasonably. Whenever I was in large groups of people, I would talk gibberish, similar to what I heard in my music, saying things that made completely no sense constantly, blabbering on like someone who was brain dead. Many friends did not like this and drifted away. 
I could barely ever string conversations together without muttering some complete gibberish. I would feel people put chips in my head, and the first time I experienced this, I teared up from realizing it didn't happen after how real it felt. Here's where I realized the side effects were serious. Years prior to the experience, I had a voice in my head that I would associate as the essence of all evil and greed. His voice came back, far stronger and louder. There would be moments where the dialogue in my head became extremely violent and angered, but it wasn't my voice, it was his. For a few days, different voices sounded off in my head telling me I was worthless, probably because I felt guilty about scarring the friends who had to save me and feeling so trampy due to it. It would get to the point where 14 different dialogues would happen inside my head, becoming so loud I couldn't hear any of my thoughts. These short episodes would result in me passing out wherever I was. On around day four of having this happen, it was the first time where the voice took full control. It was disturbing. My voice drowned out to the point where it was no longer there. Then it went quiet. It was just him, the essence of all evil, alone in my head. I'm lucky this mostly happened at night when I was alone because he would take full control of me and my body. He would message people on Snapchat, good friends of mine, telling them the most violent deeds he wished to inflict on them. I would be short-tempered and angry in the day, lashing out at people and even choking them. I realized this voice resonated from inside my physical biology, but in my mind, I couldn't have been further from being him. He was evil, literal evil, telling friends he wished them dead. Of course, this wasn't taken well. I don't blame anyone who was driven from me due to this happening. I was nuts. I was literally telling people how I would want to gouge their eyes out for no reason. It wasn't me trying to be edgy. It was a full-on persona in my head. He usually listened to death grips when he took control, turning my head into a cauldron of rage before it resulted in me eventually passing out. The third time it happened, I defeated him by creating a new persona in my head named Mini-Me, who sat on my shoulder. And when he tried to control him, it was a trap, and Mini-Me killed him, and I was safe. The next time it happened, he simply snapped Mini-Me's neck and took control of me anyway. It was insanity. I couldn't hear myself think. I started hallucinating during the day, seeing objects randomly arc upwards towards the ceiling before coming back down instantly. When I fell asleep, I would see Sauron from Lord of the Rings standing in the corner of my room. I heard people speak right behind me in my ear when no one was around. When he took control of me, he would write lyrics of the most unspeakable thing as notes for me to read, realizing it was me who wrote them. He would turn me into an evil genius and create the most complex designs and objects and aerodynamic packages for cars every time I went to try and sleep. Reality was shattered. I constantly felt as though I was in a simulation or a coma. I thought friends trying to talk to me on Snapchat were agents from the people running the simulation trying to figure out what I knew. I felt watched. I felt monitored. Nothing was real. I was truly all on my own for a while. It allowed me to think of the craziest ideas, some of them truly genius. I try to construct my ego into shapes to help thought flow. I needed help. I went to my GP and told them about my experiences. They referred me to a psychiatric center. I had weekly sessions over a span of around five months or so. They could be tough at times. After the sessions, I would talk to myself instead of thinking in my head, leaving my mind blank. 
I got better though. I've mended relations with my friends as best as I can, but with some, there are most likely still scars remaining. Around the same time, I also had a few other traumatic experiences that happened to me. I had a genuine and justified fear of being robbed and stabbed every day for a while afterwards, yet I feel most of these experiences were from the bad E. Be careful. It took me months to get better, and I am not the same now. LSD was actually part of what helped me get better, but taking drugs will never be the same again. Do research. Be careful. Make sure your mind is prepared. I'm 15. I'm lucky my experiences only cost me friendships rather than a whole lifestyle. I was 15 years old at this time. I am now 16. I am a very experienced drug user. I have tested and tried multiple different things, especially psychedelics. L and D have done acid and shrooms a few times and 2CB once with me. They're a little bit experienced, but they were not ready for what this night held for all of us. I am making this story of one of my most recent psychedelic experiences, an experience that changed who I am forever. This story is not to glorify the use of drugs, any type, but by my own experiences, it made me look at life much more positively. Also, I wanted to say, if you have ever contemplated any kind of suicide, talk to your family and friends that you trust. If you don't have that, I promise there is a way out of that thinking, and someone in this horrible crew world does care about you, like myself. I don't know who you are, but I do care about you. So let's get to this. It happened July 18th, 2021. Keep in mind, this is the same day my brother committed suicide just two years later. I wish I can go back in time and be more wise and take less drugs and figure out what went wrong. To this day, I really have no clue what did go wrong. It was supposed to be a fun and trippy night. For my friend that I will call L for this story, there were many different factors to why this was a bad trip for him. For me too, technically. It was a horrible trip but a learning experience nonetheless. I remember so many parts of this like it was yesterday. I get what is called flashbacks every other week. It is not excessive, but it is still there. To be 100% honest, this experience has never stopped me to use it again. I just want to see what happens, you know? So to the time we took these drugs, I had my two friends L and D come over and I'm full on all kinds of drugs, LSD, shrooms, crystal molly, 2CB, and weed. We were smoking all day, and we had a plan to use the LSD, shrooms, and 2CB at a certain time. 10 p.m. hits, I take 10 tabs of LSD, a quarter of shrooms, and like 60 milligrams of 2CB with 0.4 grams of crystal molly. I let L&D only take like 3 tabs and a lot of shrooms and a bit of 2CB. We were just chilling for 20 minutes, then the shit started kicking in at 10.30 and I'm tripping balls. I'm looking at my boys, like, yo, this is gonna be so much fun. Last thing I remember from 10 to 11 is I was looking at the hair on D's leg and it was squiggling and wiggling in all kinds of directions. I have no clue how to explain what I was looking at 
but it was just so weird. After 11, apparently I disappeared for what seemed like forever, as they described it, and I never came back. Elle was looking for more shrooms, asking D, will he kill us? For some reason, Elle was so convinced that I was going to kill him because he took more without asking me, and he knew that all of everything there was all mine. All he brought was like two carts. So Elle was asking D if they should take more, and they did at some point, but Elle eventually started to have a panic attack because he was scared I was going to kill him for some reason. I'm still nowhere to be found this whole time. D, who was calm the entire trip, claimed he saw me just melt more and more into a couch the more he looked. Then eventually, I just disappeared. I'm nowhere to be found. I think at that time I was laying in my living room. They ate more shrooms. D told me months later that I was gone and that L was going crazy at the time and apparently said, I'm fucking done with this shit. And then he decided to run with the wind, as we both said apparently. A note on what L told me. While in the basement, he was convinced he was in a forest and saw animals running around him and just circling all over him. And the most notable thing D had saw, the calm one, said he went up the stairs from my basement slowly. Like he said it took him a minute to get up the stairs and as he's going up the stairs, he feels like he's a lot higher than the staircase is. Then he goes to the door. I'm pretty sure he left it open. I'm not 100% sure. But he said he saw it closed. Then it just swung open. And as soon as it did, he said he saw a black figure with its hands out meditating on the floor. And as soon as he saw that, he turned around and went back downstairs. He said the figure was also waving for him to go over there, but he did not listen to it. As far as I know, he could have saved the whole trip of ours because of that hallucination. I'm going to go back to L's experience. The moment he said he was done with this shit, he just ran as fast and as far as he could, up the stairs, then out of the front door. At that moment, I believe I was still laying on the floor. He kept running and running until people heard him screaming, sleep to stay alive. Keep in mind, my house has cameras and a ring that goes off if any front or back door is opened when it should not be opened. For some reason, it did not decide to ring until it was too late and they could not find us unless we were screaming. Dee was chilling in the basement this whole time. He said he felt like he melted into the chair. Eventually, I wake up and I see the front door open and I get so confused. So then I decided to run too and try to find him before the alarm went off. I realized I would not be able to find him and I heard him screaming, sleep to stay alive. So then I started screaming it as well. And eventually I heard him stop. And as soon as that happened, my body fell and just gave up it seemed like. Other people eventually heard us. A group of older teens who knew who we were they said he tripped and just called 911 to try and help. They heard another voice, which was mine, so eventually they started looking for me. They saw me laying in the middle of the road, almost no clothes on, and my body was purple. Their first thought was, he's dead. I do not know how to explain what happened to me, but let's start here. I'm reliving the greatest moments of my life, family there, best friends, my brother, all of them. In every memory, there's a door, a door that gets brighter and brighter as I go through them, as if I'm going up like I'm on the stairway to heaven. 
As I'm ascending, there's one more door that I need to go through. These gates, beautiful gates, gates of heaven, I believe. And I then see my body laying in the middle of the road, almost no clothes on, and body purple, like the girl who found me explained. I see myself, and I'm thinking, is this really going to be the end of my life? This is what happens when I die? Then I see a girl walk up to me, start shaking me, screaming, Dami, Dami, don't die please. Then I hear a voice, a loud whisper. As far as I know, it was the voice of God. It says, Dominic, I have a question for you. Do you want to come here with us? Or would you like to try again in this life? I said, please let me stay here. I don't want to go back. I was begging. The voice said, Dominic, you are not even close to done with what you are going to do. You're supposed to save, help, and change as many lives as you possibly can. You're not done, Dominic. I said, okay, I will try harder in this life. Then I woke up, and the girl was right there. She was talking to me, but I have no clue what she was saying. I just kept saying, no, this is not real. I'm already dead. None of this is real. You are not real. Who are you? She shook me again and pointed her finger like two houses down the road and said, Now is this real? Does that look fake to you? Down the road was multiple ambulances and cop cars surrounded their house, and all I hear is screaming and screaming. The girl took me back to my house and into my room, and I was alone there for a while. I'm just walking around in circles, looking at my pet bearded dragon. He looked so fucking interesting at the time. Then eventually, I just laid down on my bed and I woke up to, is that him? And just to my wonder, both of my grandparents were standing in my room asking me so many questions and looking at me. They turned on the light and what was once my room turned into the most geometrical room in the world. I have no clue how to explain what my own room looked like. They are still asking me millions of questions it seemed like and I only heard one main question, what the fuck did they take? I could not talk. I was way too scared. Then they got closer to me, and they were staring at me, I think. They looked like horrific monsters, faces I could never explain. And as they were looking in my eyes, I hear one say, Oh Jesus Christ. The police eventually came to my house and went upstairs to get me, and they started asking thousands of questions. I yelled out, It's all downstairs! Fuck you monsters! Get away from me! So then they take me downstairs, and just to my belief, I see Dee, who looks dead, staring into the ceiling. I start to get confused. They also turn the lights on in the basement, and as soon as they did, Dee explained it hurt his eyes so horribly. And as we are down there, Elle is already in a stretcher being taken to the ER. As I see Dee in the chair, I walk up to him and say, If this is the last time you ever see me, I love you bro. Thank the Lord it was not the last time I saw both of them. Those are my childhood long best friends. Me and Dee are also eventually put on a stretcher. I was able to walk perfectly fine. I kept saying that. Same with Dee, he told me. But they told us both the same thing. This is how they all die. I remember being in the ambulance and they kept taking my pulse. I heard them say, his pulse is going up and down very rapidly. Then, I'm still in the stretcher, and they let me out of it, and I'm put in an ER room next to L, who I saw. 
His body was like he was being exercised. I'm never going to forget that picture in my brain. I've seen things much worse, but that one hurts really badly. I remember being in the emergency room, and they put a whole bunch of stickers and cords on me, and it felt and looked like there were snakes biting all over my body. I look at the EKG monitor, and my heartbeat went flat. I saw it go flat, but I was still alive. Then it just went back down, over and over again. This whole time, my grandparents are in there with me, with a nurse and a cop watching. They finished the EKG scan quickly, and the cop that was just so fucking eager to ask me millions of questions did so when the nurse left. He was asking me, where is everything? And I told him, I did not know any better. I just kept talking and laughing hysterically at him, saying stuff like, do you really think you control people? Do you really even like your job? You're nothing, but what many, many people hate in this world, you suck. I should really spit on your face. Of course, I would never do such a thing. I've been a good kid most of my life. No trouble with any feds. But I didn't know what I was saying. I just said it. If for some odd reason this officer is listening to this story, I truly do apologize for my actions and words towards you and your partners. I also heard Al was giving cops trouble. He was fighting with the cops in the ditch. I do not know anything about that, which is why I have not mentioned it. But back to me. I was in the room laying down, a shirt on my head, talking and talking, and for some reason, I thought it would be the funniest thing in the world if Ella died. I was so convinced that the greatest moments of my life was actually his life. As I look back, I know they were mine, because first, why would I relive a whole other human being's life? And second, why would my family be in his? It did not make sense to me at the time, I just thought it was all his, and he was going to die. Longer into my stay at the ER and cops asking me questions, I started asking for a cup of water. Some old nurse had to get it, and it felt like forever when she finally came back with it. I was getting so irritated that I started yelling, Where's my fucking water? I saw the fountain right there. I was so angry. I just wanted water. As soon as I drank the whole cup, I pissed like two gallons, and my grandparents said I pissed my pants multiple times. I felt very embarrassed. I remember seeing L's and D's parents in the hospital. I remember D left first and I screamed to them, I'm sorry this is all my fault. We just wanted to have fun. I remember they said walking away, it's okay honey, it was all an accident. I was at the ER for maybe another 10 minutes and went back home. As I was going back home, I just remember everything still seeming so fake. I got home and went into my room. My grandparents checked up on me like every 30 minutes. It was all so fake. It felt as if I was a ghost being led back home. Now it's the 19th. Elle comes back over to apologize after all the things that had happened. I said there was no need to apologize. It was all my fault. We weren't ready. He was with his mom and two little brothers. I felt horrible for his family to see us the way they saw us that night and this morning. It's a really bad feeling. Elle said he stayed most of the night at the hospital with his mom until the trip died down. That's as far as the trip goes. It is July 19th now. I know I'm going to get arrested. So I did what any scared 15 year old would do. I tried to kill myself at like 10 in the morning. I took 30 tabs of acid, I did 4 lines of the molly, 
I ate an absurd amount of shrooms, smoked as much weed as I could, and ate the rest of the 2CB, which was maybe under 70 milligrams. It's obvious that I did not die. I do not remember anything that happened after that morning for three months. I remember the DEA coming to my house. I also think the FBI came to arrest me. Within a three month span, I do not remember what had happened. I got out of that daze like three months later. I was in a rehab facility that was horrible for me. I hated it. Today, after that experience, I learned a lot. Now, whenever I take anything at all, I'm afraid to do too much. I'm afraid I'll get kicked right back into that night. And from there, only God knows what would happen. Thank you for listening. I hope this helps you to second guess using a hallucinogenic drug.